I'll go ahead and do a quick introduction for the people that will be watching on my YouTube. Uh, what we're going to be debating here is, is socialism preferable to capitalism or should we strive towards socialism? So I'm obviously taking the negative on that and uh, Turn Leftist Podcast is taking the positive on that. So we're going to do opening statements. Um, I guess I'll do mine first uh, and then he'll do his. The opening statements are just presenting our cases, so they're not responding to each other yet. After that, then we can have an open discussion and we can go on for like an hour or so. And if we have closing statements, we want to go over. I didn't prepare a closing statement, but, you know, we'll just give our closing thoughts at the uh, end of the debate. So I'll go ahead and get my uh, opening statement ready right here. All right. All right. So my presentation is socialism slash communism is bad for real. All right. So what's most important is what even is socialism or communism? Uh, this is a rough question to answer because communists and socialists can't really seem to agree. If you ask five communists or five socialists what these words mean, you'll get seven different answers. Um, we also know that communism and socialism are sometimes interchangeable. Some people say, oh, I'm a socialist, but I'm against communism or vice versa. So it's, it's, it can be a bit complex and a lot of nuance is required. But there are some common tendencies for communists and socialists. Number one is the abolition of private property. So if you have a Marxist-Leninist or if you have a market socialist, uh, individualist anarchist, they're really going to be striving towards the abolition of private property no matter where they stand. All right. They also have opposition to wage labor. That kind of ties into it. And they have a desire for economic equality. Uh, one of my mentors, uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe, I need to move my head so I can read this. He says, socialism by no means an invention of 19th century Marxism, but much older, must be conceptualized as an institutionalized interference with or aggression against private property and private property claims. Capitalism, on the other hand, is a social system based on the explicit recognition of private property and of non-aggressive contractual exchanges between private property owners. So that's kind of the definitions that I'm operating on, and I think they're pretty fair. We established that socialism abolishes private property. So this brings us to socialism's fatal flaw. Without private property and the means of production, there will be no market for the means of production. Without a market for the means of production, there will be no monetary prices established for the means of production. Without monetary prices reflecting the relative scarcity of capital goods, economic decision makers will be unable to rationally calculate the alternative use of capital goods. And uh, you can read more about this in Ludwig von Mises' essay, Economic Calculation in the Socialist Commonwealth. So we have a few examples of socialism in history, you know, uh, either people striving towards the abolition of private property or outright abolishing private property. So socialism in Chile is one example. We have Salvador Allende. He came into power in 1970 through an election. Uh, I've noted his campaign was funded by the KGB. So, you know, we can talk about whether or not that was legitimate to, you know, to happen in a democratic election. So what he did after he was elected was he nationalized some industries. He nationalized copper, healthcare, and 1,500 farms. He allowed armed Marxist militias to roam free and threaten or even kill civilians. Specifically, this which, was targeted which at... Which civilians uh, exactly, though? Uh, I'll, I'll get to that. Yeah, this is just yeah. the opening statement. I'll, I promise I'll like try to elaborate no, on my sources. Um, allowed. So this is specifically targeted at business owners. Uh, okay. Destroyed freedom of speech, sanctioning media, jailing journalists, closing newspapers and radio stations arrested and tortured political opponents. And basically, he gave Pinochet power. He appointed Pinochet, and he built Pinochet's dictatorship. And so all of this comes from 
the uh, document, the Declaration of the Breakdown of Chile's Democracy, which came from um, the uh, Chamber of Chile, which is basically their equivalent to our House of Representatives. This was in 1973, uh, several weeks before the coup. So the results of socialism in Chile was 1,000% was 1, plus inflation rates, an unprecedented decline in production, shortages in basic commodities, mass protests and strikes, and a massive decline in real wages. So you can read more about these specific effects in uh, socialist economist Alec Nov's book, Socialism, Economics and Development. Um, Sebastian, S Sebastian Edwards also has a few papers on this. Um, one of them is called Macroeconomic Populism in Latin America. Um, and then also some of this is documented in the Declaration of the Breakdown of Chile's Democracy. And right here we have um, real wages in Chile. The orange lines represent uh, Allende's presidency. So we see a massive decline of roughly 70%, um, pretty major. Then we have socialism in Burma, which is something not talked about often. Um, I spent a month in Burma back in 2017. So this is something that's very close to me. Um, so uh, the socialist leader, sorry, I forget his name. I think it's exact second. Um, he overthrew the democratically elected pre uh, prime minister in 1960 through, 1962 in a coup. He started the Burmese way to socialism. So this lasted from 62 to 88. They established a Soviet-style planned economy, complete with five-year plans. Uh, they nationalized all major industries, import-export trade, rice, banking, newspapers, mining, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they seized 15,000 private firms and chased out foreign capitalists. So this mostly included um, Indians and, cap and Chinese. The result of this was they severely stunted economic growth. They had a massive black market, um, which accounted for 80% of the national economy. They built massive foreign debt, restricted freedom of speech, and wiped out millions in savings belonging to the Burmese people. Um, this led to the uh, 888 uprising, which you can, you can look that up. Who was, uh, I'll ask about that one later, sorry. Uh, next, we get to war communism in Russia. So uh, Lenin established that production should be run by the state. Private ownership should be kept to the minimum. Private houses were to be confiscated by the state. State control was granted over the labor of every citizen, and they had extreme centralization. The result of this was the number of factories and mines. The number of workers in factories and mines dropped by 50%. Production in large factories dropped by 82%. The average worker productivity dropped by 44%. 90% of wages were paid in goods rather than money. Uh, grain harvest was cut almost in half, and there was mass starvation and disease. So um, after that, of course, they switched to the new economic policy for a number of years, but I'm not going to get into that right now. Uh, but then you had the uh, sort of reverting back too close to what war communism was when Stalin came into power with the five-year plans and such. So he collectivized agriculture. They had what I'm going to call slave labor in the prisons, uh, which was a very important part of industrialization. They had unrealistic quotas, and they had their brief partnership with the Nazis. This resulted in the Holodomor genocide, uh, simultaneous labor shortages and surpluses, which means some areas had shortages, some areas had surpluses, which just kind of shows uh, how terrible they were at allocating capital goods or inputs. Dead food shortages, ecological disaster, mass repression, no freedom of speech, slower growth, and uh, massive losses in World War II as a result of their inferior economic system. 
All right, so now we get to some of the evidence on uh, the Soviet Union under Stalin. There's a great paper by several uh, uh, Russian economists a few years back, National Bureau of Economic Research Working Paper 19425. Uh, it's called, Was Stalin Necessary for Russia's Economic Development? There's also a book by uh, socialist economist Alec Nov called, Was Stalin Necessary, I believe, which kind of has the uh, same concept. So what these guys did is they... Uh, establish what's called a synthetic control analysis in which they take kind of different parts of other economies or other data we have to create as much of an accurate counterfactual as we possibly can. This is a relatively new thing in economics and in science in general. Um, it's really good um, because it helps us establish as many controls as possible so we can actually get, we can actually make accurate predictions. Um, so their conclusion was, was Stalin necessary for Russia's economic development? In short, our answer is a definitive no. A SARS economy, even our conservative version, assuming that it would not experience any, any decline in frictions, would have achieved a rather similar structure of the economy and levels of production as Stalin's economy in 1940. Uh, there was a similar analysis done by Jose Fernandez de la Punte in his book, Back to, Back to the USSR. Um, he says, given the above analysis, I conclude that Stalinism managed to grow GDP faster than Tsarist Russia, but the prices in terms of welfare to pay for the growth was not worth it. Liberalizing reforms in Tsarist Russia would have probably led to even faster growth. Um, from the book, The Penguin History of Modern Russia, I promise I'm wrapping up soon. Penguin History of Modern Russia by uh, historian Robert Service. He says, the human cost of Stalin's industrial strategy had been a had been huge throughout the 1930s. Deaths occurred in their millions, the diet and health of the surviving population was poor, and popular hostility to the government had been intensified. Nor can it be wholly discounted that the USSR would have been able to achieve about the same volume of output from its factories and mines if the new economic policy had been maintained. So I definitely uh, don't prefer the new economic policy over a free market, but it was far more preferable than uh, Stalin's central planning or war communism. From a Collapse of an Empire by uh, Yegor Gator. I, I, I believe he was a, a Soviet economist. And he, he, he might have been prime, prime minister at one point. The use of raw materials and energy in the production of... I should clarify, now I'm kind of getting to the uh, ecological disaster part I mentioned. The use of raw materials and energy in the production of each final product was respectively 1.6 and 2.1 times greater than in the United States. And he goes on to point out you know, specific inputs or they had to use far more of these inputs to essentially reach the same outputs um, because of a, uh, a lack of efficient allocation of resources. And this is what leads to um, what is documented in the book, Ecocide in the USSR, right? So wasting a ton of inputs isn't good for the environment. You're, you're uh, having to harvest more materials for the same outputs. It's not good. All right, and there, there are many other, other issues. So Ecocide in the USSR documents basically the USSR being the worst ecological disaster in the history of mankind. And they say, for the environment, the central planning system became Frankenstein's monster. Without a market mechanism to determine the value of credit, goods, and services, they assigned arbitrary costs and prices to capital, labor, raw materials, and equipment. And so this is kind of the same argument that I presented at the beginning, but rather than this being from libertarian economists, this is from two left-wing journalists. So they were just able to establish this exact same argument, just making observations. They didn't go and read Mises. 
They didn't do any of that. They just observed this happening. Um, and now we're going to get a little bit further into the overall effects of communism or socialism. Um, this uh, New York Post headline reads, Science proves communism makes nations poor and less healthy. So this is citing this paper um, in the peer-reviewed journal, Opens Royal Society, Open Science. Um, the paper is called Deep Cultural Ancestry and Human Development Indica Indicators Across Nation States. And so what they do is they have multiple variables accounted for, including geography, which is a really underrated variable when it comes to um, economic comparisons. Um, and they also have comparisons in um, ancestry and different religions. And so what you find is communism as a variable is significantly negatively associated to HDI, income index, and health index. So this looks at um, 44 Eurasian countries. So this is mostly like countries that were part of the uh, Soviet bloc, of course. Uh, this paper, the economic calcul the economic consequences of durable left populist re regimes in Latin America is another synthetic control analysis. Um, in this one, they're looking at Venezuela, Nicaragua, Nic Nicaragua, Bolivia, and Ecuador. And what they find is on average, these regimes reduced real per capita incomes by over 20%. And they speculate, you know, maybe people will say, oh, well, there's trade-offs, right? Like, like um, less inequality or better health. But they go on to say, we find no evidence of such a trade-off on average, as the average performance of these regimes on infant mortality and inequality did not significantly differ from the predictions of the average synthetic control counterfactual. And there's a very similar study to this, except it looks at liberalization, uh, mostly in Latin America and Africa. So they're looking at um, five case studies in Asia, five in Latin America, and 16 in Africa, and four in the Middle East and North Africa. We find that economic liberalization, as presented in the Sachs-Warner indicator, tends to have by and large a positive or at least non-negative impact on the trajectory of real income per capita. So they're basically finding the opposite effects when you liberalize rather than go more towards a socialist system. I think this is the last one. I, yep, this is the last one I have. So this is a literature review of um, over 200 studies, uh, specifically 198. And they look at associations between outcomes and secure property or private property, freer trade, more stable money and prices, and less government spending and fewer regulations. Over two-thirds of the studies, which is 134 out of 198, found economic freedom corresponding to a good outcome such as faster growth, better living standards, more happiness, etc. Only eight papers, which is less than 4% of the sample, found economic freedom was associated with bad outcomes such as increased income inequality. So that's it. Um, I think the overall evidence shows us that communism or socialism leads to bad outcomes, and the opposite is true when it comes to free markets. Yeah, it's cool. Um, sorry. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, an impressive set of slides. Uh, I can see, like, that's usually the style of your channel, right, is to present, like, a lot of data like that. Yeah. Make an argument that way. And I, I, we don't have to get to all of that. No, um, that's fine. I mean, I'm glad you did that because things. we could literally go through all of those again, like, one at a time, and I can give you, like, my initial responses to them, and I'm sure they would spur plenty of discussion. Um, I guess in 
by way of an opening statement, since I didn't prepare anything even close to that, um, I guess my overall response to it is that I'm familiar with like most of the, the arguments that you're making, not a lot of the, uh, the graphs that you had towards the end there. And uh, I, I'm familiar with them a lot. And that's why I was saying before we, before you gave your statement, I think a lot of it is going to come down to what our definitions are, where we set the definitions of things, like what countries we're defining as communist versus socialist. Uh, what we even are. I, so that's, again, a lot of the territory I run into with Zulu, I find as well. Um, so yes, yeah, another thing is, I guess is a matter of goalposts. Like I wanted to see like what metrics we're going to use to measure like what is more materially beneficial to people. And I noticed you started to address that too. Like my general idea of how those arguments tend to go is that the people on the right tend to cite examples of, like you said, economic freedom or economic, um, what do you call it? It's like liberty. It's always like, cause it's usually not social mobility. It's usually not income equality. And it's usually not, uh, what you, like what I would call quality of life material measures, like your returns on what you spend for healthcare, as opposed to the cost or free time that you have. It's usually things like how many consumer goods are you able to buy? Because that is usually what capitalism, even as Marxists will admit it excels at. And what usually has to happen to make the case for that is to ignore what the trade-off is. And like you said, you mentioned that in one of your last slides, but there's usually something, it's usually just a matter of me asking enough questions until we get to where the hidden exploited labor force is. Maybe it's in like the prison, the for-profit prison complex. Maybe it's in like another country entirely and it's like sweatshop labor. But usually in capitalist countries, that is the case is that this supposed free market explosion of growth and civility and profits is predicated on that and so it's usually a matter of finding where that is and then i'm trying to think what else did you have in there i mean if you want to go back we can go through some of those because i think you had a lot of really good things that will spur some discussion because like yeah and i, I can make some points on some of the things you said like yeah, i definitely wanted to try to understand you guys as much as possible and from anyone who knows my content they know i really hone in on marxist leninists so that means i i watch a lot of stuff. I watch Keem. I watch all the other guys whose names I can't pronounce on, on, um, on YouTube, different Marx Leninist, Second Thought, people like mm. that, right? So I'm, I'm very familiar with the literature. I go and read your guys' um, research, Google Docs, and stuff like that, Reddit threads, all those things. So yeah, I wanted to present Can I make stuff like a couple would... quick recommendations? Sure. Two of my favorites lately have been Ben Norton uh, with his uh, Multipolarista show, and then... Um, Brian Becker with his The Socialist Program. And both of them have very similar messages, but they do a much better job of having like real professional historians and economists on to explain the kind of thing that I'm going to roughly say here tonight, because that's mostly where I'm getting a lot of my narrative for all of this. So but go ahead. Yeah, I'm definitely familiar with Ben Norton. So yeah, that's why I wanted to go into detail. And I'm trying to mostly label the ones as the country's socialist or, or communist as ones that you would label as those things. Mm -hmm. So like in the paper that looks at the... Um, the communism, that's all Eastern Bloc countries, right? So I think I think is, as a Marxist-Leninist, you consider those to be communist and or socialist. Um, For the most part, yeah. And yeah, yeah, the, the, there are definitely things like income inequality that we, we saw like sort of standing out in two different instances. One was when they looked in the, um, the synthetic control on Latin America and they wanted to see, okay, well, is this a trade-off in this case? In that case, they said it, it wasn't. But in the larger thing of looking at a bunch of studies, they said it was a trade-off. Um, now, I 
personally, I don't think it is a trade-off. I think the last one was wrong, um, and, but we can get into that a little later. So, yeah, you said you wanted me to pull this up and I can show you some of these again. Yeah, I mean, a lot of those had a lot of really great, at least jumping off points that we could delve deeper into. There we go. All right, well, we'll go back to the beginning and then you can just... What we have, yeah, so... If you want to start at the, the different sources I gave, it sort of starts at the was Stalin necessary paper. Uh, go back even further. Like, what was your, what was your first slide? Okay. So you want to start here? So, okay, so then uh, some of this was even news to me. Uh, came, came into power in 1970 through an election. Sounds good. Campaign funded by the KGB. I would concede that that, that is news to me, but I would be like, yeah, I think even, yeah, based. That's fine. Um, Nationalized copper healthcare, 1,500 farms, cool. Allowed armed Marxist militias to roam free and threaten or even kill civilians. So that was where I would like, it pricks up my ears because it makes me wonder who are these civilians exactly? Is it people who are organizing with the right? Is it people who are supposed, uh, you know, even free speech warriors, but then the, you come to find out, find out they're actually working with the CIA or some kind of US intelligence service? It's like, a, a thing I say a lot on my show is that we tend to see very familiar patterns in a lot of these socialist countries and things that cause them to quote unquote fall apart or not succeed or whatever. And a lot of it happens to involve the CIA. And that's kind of what makes us sound like crazy conspiracy theorists because of how much the CIA has done this kind of thing and how prevalent it is. And then we keep acting like they're this boogeyman when in reality, they just have controlled a lot of the fates of socialist countries for the last 50, 60, 70 years. I mean, pretty much since the end of world war two, but, um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, that, that kind of applies to, I mean, just real quick, that applies to all the other points as well. It's like, when you say there's a destroyed freedom of speech, a lot of times that involves closing newspapers that are like radio-free X or Y country, which is like just a, an obvious arm of the CIA. Jalen journalists, again, like tend to be people who are, who have a reactionary message and are like counter-revolutionaries and tortured political opponents. It's like, yeah. And then I guess the last thing, and I'll let you explain this too, is gave Pinochet power because from my understanding, I thought that was the result of the CIA and the Chicago boys that Pinochet came to power to begin with. Like Allende's last words were that he was, you know, going to be burned alive in like uh, the embassy or whatever because of the, the Pinochet coup. But I, if, I'm, if I'm mistaken about all that, please enlighten yeah, me. Yeah, sure. So in regarding, regarding the CIA, um, I do recognize that there's obviously CIA interference in a lot of these different instances. Uh, they mm -hmm. kind of get around everywhere. Um, I think it's overblown some of the time. Sometimes it's not. Uh, I think this is a case where it is entirely overblown. Um, so when I, destroying freedom of speech, yeah, I mean, we don't have specific evidence on what every single one of these instances were. But I mean, I would I would argue like, even if they are closing like Radio Free Europe papers or, or, or Radio Free Chile, whatever it, stuff like that, that's still a violation of free speech. I know you from our last debate, we saw that you kind of disagree in some of those areas. Um, but you know, I still consider that to be freedom of speech. I think allowing political dissent to you know kind of present their side is something that's very important in a free society. Mm -hmm. um, so when I say you gave Pinochet power. What a lot of people don't know is Allende really wanted a dictatorship and he went like hardcore because, you know, they, they don't have many years in power. I think it's uh, I think it was six years at the time. And he wanted to like completely 
turn the country into a communist country and uh, as fast as he could. But he, he kind of, even though he was elected, he went hardcore trying to turn the country into a dictatorship. So this is why the um, declaration of the breakdown of Chile's democracy happened and why, you know, the, the representatives are like, oh, hold on. We need to we need to kind of reconsider what's happening here because he was going behind the uh, he was violating the Constitution. He wasn't putting things through the representatives. You know, and these are supposed to be the democratically elected representatives. So you'd think that if someone's trying to establish a, a democratic Marxist state, then they would actually go through those people or they would at least listen to the the populace, which he wasn't because they were starting strikes. They were protesting. And this is why the coup happened. The coup didn't happen because of the CIA. Now, this the America did want a coup to happen, but that's not saying much because they, they want coups to happen a lot. You know, they're just kind of like, yeah, it would be great if a coup would happen. Sometimes they do something about that. Sometimes they don't. In this case, they didn't do anything about mm -hmm. that per se. Now, there, there was economic embargoes, but the effects of those ended up being pretty mute because the Soviet Union just came in and provided a bunch of credit and aid to Chile. Like we're talking billions of dollars. Um, at one point, they were even sending a whole ship full of tanks and, and various weapons over. And that was actually when the coup happened. And then they had to like revert the uh, the ship. They were mm. like, oh, yeah, our guy's gone. Um, and they were they were also like bribing him specifically to do things for them. So, yeah, so he was so when I say he gave he built Pinochet's dictatorship, I'm saying he established the dictatorship and Pinochet literally utilized this entire system that Allende built. And that's where his dictator dictatorship came from. He didn't start a dictatorship. He was a dictator, but he just continued a dictatorship. Uh, initially, he kept a lot of Allende's economic policies until 75. And that's when um, he started the uh, free market reforms. So I would say the CIA did not cause the coup. Um, the most I've seen that they did is they gave funding to some of the groups that were striking. Um, and some people say, oh, well, yeah, so all the strikings and economic problems happened because of the CIA. But the thing is, like these these labor unions and these strikers, they actually went to the CIA and asked for the funding. So they didn't incur. They didn't like start the strikes. The strikes just were able to continue and not forced into stopping because they got funding from the U.S. Interesting. Interesting. So those are interesting takes on those. I would say that. Uh... I think there's not much disagreement between our takes on the events and more so our interpretation of them. Uh, I, although I would contest the CIA not being involved. I think the CIA would be much more involved. I just am not particularly well read on Allende or Chile in that time period. I've like talked about it briefly and I've read some articles and everything, but just to get a, a broad overview, which I pretty much described already, but um, regarding things like Operation Gladio, like that's something that we have talked about more often. And that kind of is the CIA's MO of doing these kind of things is to fund usually far right groups and make it look like just, what do you call it? Grassroots national sentiment or whatever that is uprooting the, the regime, the quote unquote regime that's in power. And again, like I say, it's just a very familiar pattern that we see over and over again. I'm also perfectly fine just saying that we will have to agree to disagree on like our interpretations of the events in Chile, because again, I mean, it's something I could just read up on and then come back to at some other point, but I would be more interested to see like what was the Chicago boys involvement in this um, exactly what were the freedom of speech and medias that they were silencing and the specific journalists and newspapers and everything because 
yeah, like I said, when it comes down to our interpretation, it's like you may say that even if these are obviously directly U.S. intelligence-funded newspapers and journalists, they should still be allowed their freedom of speech. And yeah, I'm just never going to agree with that. I'm just never going to agree that any socialist country should allow that to happen in their country if they want even, even the chance at a successful socialist project. And yeah, I don't know, that doesn't seem like an outlandish thing to me, especially if you just like flip it and say like, should the U.S. allow like, I don't know, like an openly Chinese communist and subversive uh, media. It's like the U.S. media blocks far more benign things than that. Like all of RT is gone. And I don't even think that was anywhere near as, what would you call it, like counterculture is like something like these uh, journalists would be in any socialist country when they're sponsored by the U.S. intelligence. Yeah, I mean, the U.S. does allow that sort of thing to happen. Um, it's mostly Russia, actually, though. Um, I, I, I'm not, I can't recall any specific cases of China, but with Russia, you know, of course you have RT, but RT isn't like, a, it is, it's not like a Marxist organization. Yeah, but that's, but so, like I said, that's blocked in the U.S. now, ever since the beginning oh, of the Russian debate. It has been since like February, but also, even if that's the case, even, even if RT was still here, there's some like China Daily or CGTN or whatever you could have access to in the U.S. What foreign media outlet is like openly calling for regime change in the U.S.? Like grassroots. <laughs> bottom. Well, any any Marxist group is essentially calling for that. Right? Any Marxist group is calling for either violently or democratically changing, you know, the, the leader, the, the entire leadership, really, you know, and changing the entire system. Um, yeah, I mean, but the, the only people I know of who actively use that language are like the Revcoms. And even they are sort of interpreted in like a, it's almost like they, people still just consider it like a theoretical thing. It's, it's weird. Yeah, you have like Soapbox, which is basically run by Marxist-Leninists, but mm -hmm. they get all their funding from um, organizations owned by the Russian government. And, you know, they're, they're like openly Marxist. And I don't think the Russian government is Marxist, but I think they're willing to fund Marxist groups or Marxist mm -hmm. organizations in the U.S. because they believe that kind of undermines the U.S. Because I think, you know, they're kind of looking at us at the perspective of, oh, you know, we're against what the Marxists did in our past. And so we want to do the we want the Marxists to do the same thing to the U.S. because the U.S. Now is that's, a, that's a good that's a hot take. I like that take. I mean, because I was very with you up until that very last line when you were saying, because I think that that's very much the case. Like I catch a lot of shit for not taking the mainstream line on the Ukraine invasion or quote unquote supporting Russia or Putin in certain things. And I don't think that Putin is at all a good guy or Russia has good aims. It's just that a lot of their things that will motivate them selfishly are also in the interest of Marxist Leninists. And I mean, that may just be because of the complete ideological contradictions between Marxism, Leninism, and capitalism, which runs the U.S. And so doing good things for Marxist-Leninists in the U.S. does help them achieve their goals as far as like destabilizing their main enemy, I suppose. So that is interesting. I like that. But I don't know if um, I don't know if Putin's doing that because he thinks that Marxism-Leninism is just a, a, a inherently destabilizing thing for any country and therefore is using it to his advantage in that way. Like, I feel like they probably realize that um, it helps build up the, the at least the sentiment for anti-U.S. hegemony and anti-U.S. imperialism, which is huge. But I mean, we can move on from the socialism in Chile side if you want to go to like one of the other ones. Yeah, I think a lot of Marxist-Leninists and even libertarians kind of like kissing the toes of Russia because they have a lot of critiques of American geopolitics, which is valid. They do. They have a lot of valid critiques of American geopolitics, and that's fine. 
but you know we have to remember they have their own problems of geopolitics and they have their own domestic problems as well um Very so true. yeah you let, what you said is uh is right there uh thousand um, percent inflation rates unprecedented decline in production shortages of basic commodities again these are all like statistics that i have not looked into in depth but i would just concede them for the sake of argument and say that when it comes to pretty much any socialist project in the past or even in the present us Marxists are more than happy to acknowledge the failures and say that those were mistakes that they should be learned from, not things that should be repeated, especially if they were a result of like some kind of dogmatic policy as opposed to adapting Marxism to real life current material conditions. So that's usually my response in general for these kind of things. I, I understand like the, you know, selecting different uh, stats and uh, yeah, it makes for good content, but that's usually our response. Like, again, I'll probably end up citing china for the most part as like the most modern and relevant example of a successful socialist project and like all of their recent developments in the last 20 to 30 years um, yeah if you want to look at this stuff one. if you want to look at like the failures of chile's policies under Allende from a socialist perspective the the book i mentioned socialism economics and development by alec nov you might you may or may not be familiar to with him because he's written a lot of economic history books about the Soviet Union, which this one actually goes into. But the first couple of chapters are about Allende, and he sort of starts off actually, let's see here. He starts off like saying, to pretend that the government merely fell victim to a conspiracy between the CIA and the extreme right is of no help to anyone. And he he goes on to actually like go over all the data and stuff. And he's, you know, he's a socialist. He he wants a socialist state, but he's mm -hmm. like, I think we need we need to be realistic about this. We need to not spread disinformation about this and just see like, yeah, these policies did fail and we can do better. Um, and, you know, he has his own view on how to do a better version of socialism, which, of course, I disagree with. But his critiques of of socialism in Chile are definitely really good. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a huge thing, especially amongst us Marxists, is there's also tons of splits. He could very well be just a slightly different tendency than you know, the, the groups I hang out and he could be like a Trotskyist and be coming at it from that angle or something. So yeah, that's yeah, he's more of a market socialist. Okay. Yeah. That would explain a lot too. But yeah, I mean, I think um, in general, we're perfectly happy to acknowledge, like I said, the failings and uh, missteps of previous socialist projects and use those as things to learn from. And I would actually say that I would make the claim that that's an advantage of socialism as opposed to capitalism, because if you have a democratic controlled system, and it has actual levers of the means of production within its purview, it's like, then you have the ability to correct those mistakes much faster. It's like, the easiest example for me is climate change. It's like we're living through an unprecedented mass extinction event, and we're seeing like increased weather, like, uh, what do you call it, severity, and uh, natural disasters increasing in uh, frequency. And so we're seeing like the real-time effects of climate change, and not only do we not have the ability to even stop the, the carbon emissions that would prevent it from getting worse. Like we can't even, yeah, we can't even slow them down. We can't even stop them from just continuing at full speed, knowing very well that it's going to very likely end humanity or make the, the entire planet uninhabitable. It's like, for me, that's like usually the home run argument when it comes to capitalism being materially worse is that in the, I don't know, four or five centuries that industrial capitalism has really taken off, it made a planet that was, perfectly habitable, uninhabitable, and put like microplastics in breast milk or whatever tea fowl put in the water with the, um, those forever chemicals, then the, uh, the nonstick stuff. I don't know. We did an episode about that too. 
So I'm going off on a rant here. I don't know if you have any response to any of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not gonna go on everything, but well, like when you said in socialism, people learn from mistakes. I would definitely disagree with that. I I think there's some instances where they kind of try it, sort of, uh, in in government, but fundamentally, there's really no good way to kind of rapidly um fix those mistakes right because everything is centralized i think that makes it much more difficult right it's, it's central planning it's called central planning for a reason so when you have a, the decentralized system or like the anarchy of production which i, I i'm kind of use, doing a tongue-in-cheek thing there, kind of using it anarchy in a, not in the term of chaos but you know decentralized the anarchy of production you have individual individual firms that fail Right. And other firms can learn from them. That's that's actually a very important function of capitalism. When you have a firm that fails, it's not really always a net negative because other firms around them and firms that don't even exist yet will learn from the failures of these firms and they can do better in the future. They can do better for themselves and do better for consumers. And an analogy I like to use is let's say you have an entire country where everybody's drinking let's say grape juice for, for the, I, I don't drink alcohol. So let's say grape juice. Um, everybody drinks grape juice and they love grape juice. In this country, you have one plant where you make grape juice and it's, it's run by, you know, the, the central government, right? If you have some sort of corruption in this case, let's say poison or, or, or disease or something that gets into the grape juice, then that's spread everywhere, right? You have everything in one place. And so everybody is affected by that. But, if rather than that, you have a decentralized system where, you know, some areas all get their grape juice from, from one factory. Some people can start their own grape juice production. Some people import grape juice from other countries. Then if this disease or this corruption happens in one plant, only the, some are affected by it, not everybody. So I think that's a very important, uh, that's a, that's a hypothetical that kind of shows how, corruption is worse when you have a centralized system when you have a central planning now for, for well, can i can i respond to your hypothetical sure i like when you guys have to use hypotheticals that just that's very entertaining to me but um like in reality central planning actually allows countries or an entire economy to adapt to conditions to changing conditions very quickly and like i'll use the example from my understanding china was able to weather the 2008 economic crisis much better than the U.S. because they were able to overnight shift their economy from production for the purposes of foreign consumption and just basically reorient it toward domestic production. And so they were less dependent on selling goods to foreign countries, knowing that other countries were going to go through a slump and their sales were going to dip as a result, and then shifted more towards economic production for domestic goods. And that allowed them to not have the similar kind of recession that many people would argue the U.S. is still suffering the effects of and that like the working class people have not actually recovered from and that the recovery that's gone on in the U.S. since then has been concentrated in the hands of the wealthy. And again, it's that capitalist juking of the stats to make it look like it's been beneficial for everyone. But again, more towards the example of your hypothetical, I think it's silly to assume that in a centralized economy that all the grapefruit juice production would happen in one place when in reality, even in a centrally planned economy, you have something like in China where their grapefruit juice may be produced in several different places, but maybe the price is managed centrally. And even that is not the case because they still have markets at lower levels. It's when they get to like essential goods, um, 
Yeah, like, uh, but it's, it's not utilities. meant to be like literally grape juice, right? We're just sort of giving an example. Like it's right, but th- of course that example, like you can have multiple. Of course you can have multiple grape juice factors, right? I'm just talking about like the like economic planning in of itself, right? Not what I mean is even not in your commodity example, production. If you use like a tainted product, centrally planned economies that don't put the profit motive over people's health are able to respond to those things better, which is why we see things like Johnson & Johnson leaving asbestos in their baby powder for decades, knowing about it. Or what happened with cigarette companies, fossil fuel companies, again, going back to the environmental change thing, but even just the baby food uh, shortage that happened recently. It's like China had a baby food shortage too, or baby formula shortage, and then they arrested the people who were responsible for manipulating the market for profit, and I think they even executed a few. And it's like, again, that's starting to look more and more attractive to people here in the West as things get more and more dire for people. Yeah, but ironically, basically everything you're bringing up is a failure of centralization, right? So if you look at the 2008 crash in the US, just look at the uh, effect of federal funds rates during this time period, or look at the M2 money stock. What you see is what the, the federal government was doing and what the Fed was doing, the central bank, is they were, well, back in 2002, really, 2001, 2002, 2003, um, they were lowering the, uh, um, sorry, the uh, qualifications for loans, probably, right? Uh, not the qualifications. I'm sorry. The interest rates. That's right. They were lowering the interest rates significantly. Um, they, they took them down from 6.5% to 1%, which is significant. And what happens when you do that, uh, when you just artificially lower interest rates, is that sends false signals, right? So you're changing the money but the actual goods, the actual available materials aren't changing, right? So it causes malinvestment and that's what often leads to um, recessions. And I don't wanna go into a whole, we're not, we're not gonna sit here and have a debate on the, the causes of the 2008 crisis, maybe another time if we want, but also, you know, the M2, the M2 money stock, you see Well, I would like to spend a couple increases. minutes on it because I do have some questions for you in that respect, because I can just kind of briefly, if I could explain how I would see it differently is because I, I feel like you could definitely point to some policies that happened from the U.S. government that you would consider government intervention, that you consider socialism, that you consider anti-free market, and that you would say caused that financial crisis and caused the crash. And I would say that those are still the result of capitalism, because even in that scenario, the government is enacting policies that were favorable to the capitalists who lobbied them in the first place. If they weren't directly written by the firms themselves, they were at least influenced to the point that Let's say it started out as a regulation on the banks that would allow something better for the working class because, I don't know, some liberal politician got it up their butt to like really grandstand and go for the gusto and write like a working class New Deal bill. We all know that like the way politics works, by the time it even gets to the floor for approval, it's going to have the input from every lobbyist, every like wealthy influence that it possibly could, and it will end up being favorable to them in the long run, if not immediately. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't call like a, a central bank capitalist whatsoever. You know, Karl, Karl Marx advocated for having a central bank. Like capitalists like myself for years have wanted, not wanted that. And if you look at instances where countries didn't have central banks or areas didn't have central banks or, or as much central banking, then they didn't, they didn't go through all these recessions. I, I think even Karl Marx noted that Scotland during their free banking period didn't experience recessions. So that's what that's what we want, right? Like I recognize that places like the US, which you know, I'm sort of defending in this debate because I'm not I'm, I'm not re- entirely approaching it from the anarcho-capitalist perspective because we're mostly talking about socialism. But 
you know, I'll, I'll defend the U.S. over like the, the Soviet Union, but I still we don't advocate for for a central bank, right? I think that's a fundamentally socialist thing. That's a, that's a thing that almost every socialist when they get in power does. They want to centralize the banking. They want to nationalize the banking. Um, so yeah, I, I would say that is a problem with central planning and a problem with centralization. And then another thing that you mentioned, uh, the uh, baby formula, that was pretty much the same thing. Baby formula is an extremely regulated and extremely subsidized markets. And the FDA themselves admitted that they were partially to blame. I would say they're almost fully to blame, but they were partially to blame for the shortage, right? So you had lots of issues like, like banning um, imports from other countries. You know, all these countries are more than willing to import, uh, to, to export baby formula to the U.S., but the FDA and the federal government just wouldn't allow them to do this. So if you run into these problems in the U.S., you know, one of the one of the great things, like how I mentioned in the uh, the grape juice example, right? Some of the people can import it, right? Even if you have domestic issues, like there's specifically domestic problems in production of baby formula, uh, or even, even you can even, I could even say, you know, maybe some people were kind of greedy and they wanted to hike up prices, but when that happens and there's still alternatives, right? Like you can import from other countries or you can go to another business. And that's mm -hmm. what actually de-incentivizes de things like um, price gouging or, or you know, kind of trying to take advantage of people in tough situations, right? So I would say it was entirely the fault of centralization that the well, baby I, formula shortage happened. For me to, to understand your point of view when it comes to be, especially to go so far as to say it's entirely the fault of centralization, I would really have to see some of the particulars as to why, I guess, are you saying baby formula was turned away from other countries or that they could have shipped it, but like they just didn't because it couldn't meet U.S. regulations because, again, I mean, that really comes down to a lot of particulars and how much of that was caused by baby formula not being able to be imported and how much was caused by artificial scarcity shortages created by the profit couching. You know what I mean? Like, I guess we'd have to probably delve into it deeper than we had the ability to just in here. But, I mean, to go so far as to say it's entirely the fault of centralization, it's like, I don't know, it just, it just strikes as odd to me. Um, but I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm also perfectly fine to just move on to a different thing since I didn't realize how, like, we're going to go for like another maybe 20 minutes. Have we really been going that long already? Yeah. I, my, my opening statement was like 15 minutes long and then we've kind of, you know, stuck on some of these. That's some of these totally things. fine though. But I mean, this has been like really, uh, easy to do. I mean, it's been very cordial. I, I've been having a good time, so I'm perfectly fine to do it again, even this week, if you want to pick up. So. Yeah. Uh, uh we, we can go back to, I'm trying to get this. We can go back to like what we've got over here, right? So, um, and we can even, if you want, like I can make a note to look into Chile and Allende. And yeah, I'll send you like everything, like everything that we've talked about where you're like, oh, I'm not really sure about that. I'll send you an article on, on the baby formula. I'll send yeah. you stuff on the CIA involvement, every, everything we've talked about. I'll make sure cool, I send cool. you all that. Um, so this, yeah, this was a good one. I remember this one being cool. The real GDP per capita. Uh, let's see. So Russia with Japanese wedges. So now this was interesting to me. I remember you saying that this was based on a system that projects counterfactuals and is probably, according to you, like the best, the best gauge we have of predicting what would have been differently, like you said, with different counterfactuals, right? Yeah, counterfactuals is something that have historically largely been ignored in mm. both history and economics because you know it is very difficult, right? I mean, a lot of people try to say it. It's mostly something that you hear in common discourse, right? Like people will say, 
oh well you know russia was much better off uh because they uh because of like stalin's five-year plans for example right and that's a tough thing to say because it's like well how do you know some of these things wouldn't have happened under the under the SAR system yeah. um and then you know some people do a similar thing with like slavery in the u.s oh would we have been better off economically if we never had slavery in the u.s i personally say yes but that's a very that was a very contested thing for many years in history and economics and you know there, there's no like real way where you can just say oh if we just boop, take it away now we can see what happens without it so uh synthetic control analyses i think they really came out in, in 2013 and started largely being used they were something that kind of fixes this right they're, not, they're definitely not perfect but you can you can go on youtube and find youtube videos on how they work and then you know in multiple different um academic journals you can see um papers about synthetic control analyses and like tons of academics uh recommending them and saying you know this is something that's you know very useful very important um and so that that's why i like using them because you know um i was watching a video by second thought where he actually talks about chile a lot and so this is why i did the research into chile but you know he says you know we can't control for all these variables it's very difficult but then he goes on to try to make all these claims without controlling for the variables it's like oh you can't make the claims that socialism is bad because maybe they failed because of other variables you're not accounting for but then he says mm -hmm. oh well it was good but he doesn't consider other variables that weren't accounted for like bolivia is a really great example they weren't super socialist but you had morales and but shortly after he came to power you had this huge surge in uh, natural gas right and it, it had nothing to do with him but it caused the economy to boom significantly um and when it boomed the natural gas was actually privately owned and then later renationalized it um so like people completely ignore that and they're like oh look at this boom that's because of morales's social policies but there's actually similar studies like this that look at his social policies and say well no actually these had a net negative and it was the natural gas that caused the economy to boom and caused you know living conditions to uh, improve so you know that's that's why these are so important so like in this case they look at japan because japan was similarly situated um in the early 1900s uh, as russia economically mm. and they grew mostly on a, a market basis right and then of course they're also looking at the stars trends and um yeah so that's that's kind of what's happening here that's cool yeah i mean so my initial response to this when you were reading through it was just to obviously question the validity of like projecting a counterfactual future according to like if the SAR was never overthrown and if they would have developed as well. Because obviously that's the easiest thing I could quibble with, right? Is to say like, oh, well, this is like some bunk theoretical science. It's like on the level of like uh, even less than like a social science, you know what I mean? But I mean, I could even just grant that like maybe it would have happened just as well under the, uh, the SAR or whatever. Um, yeah, I was actually going to go and like add in like different academic papers specifically about synthetic control analyses and show like oh, this is something that's highly recommended this is something that's very mainstream it's not like you know like you said some some bunk science or something but i just yeah, didn't yeah. have the time to do that i mean i kind of i kind of regard all of uh economics as like bunk science though because like the way that we marxists see it is like when you have people who are studying economics under capitalism they pretty much act as like the priests of the religion for the elites of that country it's just to reaffirm and i mean not to be insulting but that's kind of how i consider like all of ancap ideology and like the whole the thing that you guys are doing it's just like that's how it comes across to us but like again i'm not saying that to like be insulting or like be spicy or whatever it's just like 
we understand that it's just like stuff that you guys arrive at like i don't know if the word is post facto or whatever it's like but it's after the fact it's like we build this on what has already been done and then describe it rather than like making prescriptions and then going based on those and that's why it results in things like so like the reason i don't go back to like Tsarist russia or stalinist russia is because again we just look back at it and we recognize that a lot of mistakes were made a lot of exploitation happened that didn't necessarily need to happen um and that's not even getting into things like the gulags but you understand the gulags differently as like i was under the impression that they were 10-year max sentences and that people were like fed and housed in like much not much but like reasonably better conditions than even prisoners here are in the u.s and that it was not necessarily the um what do you call it the powerhouse of economic generation of wealth that even the prisons are in the u.s today but again that, that's just my understanding well, it's, it's, it's kind of the, could... yeah that's kind of the opposite right so prisons in the u.s prison labor is a net negative right so i i'm like totally against prison labor right so i'm, I'm not going to defend the concept itself but in the u.s the amount of outputs that any prison labor produces is significantly less than the actual cost of having those people in prison. So the cost of I would say that may even be the case, but I would say that kind of makes our case is that the U.S. government is actually using its labor force, like its normal taxpaying citizens, to fund a basically subsidized slave labor program for the benefit of businesses like Walmart and whoever is selling those products that are produced there. Well. Uh, in in that case, like it's it's still a net negative, right? The this is just something like you have people. I think any sort of claim that we're jailing people for prison labor is completely unfounded. It doesn't match up with the actual historical trends. It doesn't really make any sense. I think I it's think. just it's one, it's uh it's a punishment. Two, it's a uh, you know you're you're tr trying to reform people, and three is you're trying to make up a little bit of the uh a little bit of the funds that you're actually putting into these people. I don't think there's any evidence of actually jail, jailing people for prison labor profit in the US. But in, in the Soviet Union, this is specifically something that they very much wanted to, wanted to do in industrialization. They really wanted to use prison labor as like a, a, a force for industrialization. And this is something that's very documented in any history book about this period in, uh, in Soviet economic history. So that, I, would, that's, I would definitely that's dispute that because, what they like did, said, but it's not a, what the U.S. does. Yeah, we, I think we just have very different understandings about both of those situations. And I explained mine already. It's pretty much a polar opposite of yours that, yeah, just the vice versa is that the gulags were an unnecessary uh, measure that was taken and it wasn't necessarily for profit, but that the U.S. prisons grew out of slavery. And I guess I never actually did watch that documentary on Netflix, the 13th, about the 13th Amendment and why it specifically made the... Uh, what do you call it, the carve-out for prison labor when it outlawed slavery, but I suppose I'll have to for next time. But that's another thing we could just get into later. Since we are at about an hour, I would like to, can I make like a general final statement and I'll let you make one and then we can call it a night? Yeah, sure. So then I guess like getting more, like I was saying before, how we don't do much apologizing for Stalinist Russia or war communism or anything like that is because we basically realized that that method may have worked in some ways for that time period, but it's definitely not necessarily what's going to work at any other place in time. Certainly not something we should dogmatically apply, just, you know, blanket-wise everywhere. Um, and again, just to reference China's model, like we generally think that they're doing a much better job of having markets at a lower level, but then 
when it comes to necessities and things like energy, like national, uh, what do you call them? Things that should be nationalized, things that are utilities. They will nationalize companies. They will put billionaires to death if they find corruption at those levels uh, and if they find it necessary. And I guess it's almost like the way I think of it is that imagine if you had a graph and you have like an exploitation measure on one of the axes. And the more you slide that up and the more you exploit people, it just creates the instability or the conditions for instability. And it may not happen immediately. It may take a while. But if you have to exploit people to build the productive forces of your society that it depends on to create whatever you tout as the successes of that society, whether it's life expectancy, whether it's material returns, or whether it's just pocket change in the citizens' pockets and they're able to buy baubles and like little shit that's going to break really quick. It doesn't matter if, it, if that's built on exploitation, you're inevitably going to create the conditions that lead to that society's downfall. And it's usually just a matter of trying to lower the level of exploitation so that you can have like a tolerable society. And that's the end goal of communism is to resolve that exploitation conflict. And we see like Stalinist Russia as a place that was ramping up the exploitation because it's what it had to do at that time and place. And obviously like we have a lot of criticisms of even like just the general labor conditions for people in the factories in the USSR, just like we have a lot of criticisms of the conditions, even in modern day China and a lot of other socialist countries that we would consider doing well. And we would just say that they're doing well, given the conditions, like being able to make do with what they're doing at this time and place. And then hopefully because of their ideology, they're moving in the correct direction. And I guess that's, I mean, just to, just to touch on a little bit, what that actually looks like in practice when I say like sliding the exploitation lever up, what that looks like and what we point out in like modern capitalist societies while you have things like mass shootings, like the rises in mental illness, the, what would you call the general instability of the U.S. where people are finding it harder to afford things, the rise in homelessness, the decreased life expectancy despite the spending on healthcare. Um, just any of the things like, I'm sure, like you said, you've hung out in enough Marxist spaces or watched enough of our media. Like, I'm sure you know the things that we tout as the failures of late stage capitalism and you know, the example, the signs that it's spinning out of control into instability. So that's like my general overall thesis. And we can just keep getting into that hour by hour for as long as you want, because I can do this forever, but you can go ahead and say whatever you like, and then we'll call it a night. Yeah. Um, I kind of, I, I wanted to make a sort of another, um, slide about inequality and Marxist exploitation, but you know, I, I, I rightly recognize that would take too long because, you know, we're, we're over an hour now. Um, but these sort of things, I do think I do recognize the Marxist critiques and especially you know, the Marxist Leninists. I recognize all the things they point to. What I say is I think most of that isn't even true at all. There is a lot of real problems. Like, I mean, you pointed to the 2008 crash. You pointed to the baby formula shortage, right? We do see a lot of problems that happen that are, are completely real. But we usually see this as a result of centralization. And so, you know, my, my idea is, you know, you, you want more privatization, you want things more decentralized. And I think that generally does make things better. And I think there's definitely overwhelming evidence to support that. Um, as far as like inequality goes, I mean, the fact is socialists, leftists, they're usually completely off the mark on that. Um, I, I did a video on my TikTok recently kind of going over the data. Uh, if you look at things like income inequality, 
and actually account for different variables like taxes and transfers. What you see is in income inequality since the 1970s has actually decreased. What you see is um, wealth, even wealth inequality, which is an even bigger thing that less people like me know how to kind of rebuke. Uh, when you account for things like social security and things like 401ks and all these other factors that are usually left out of inequality measurements, inequality statistics, what you see is the top 1% share of the wealth remains the same since uh, going back, usually it's from 89 to, to current days, right? So most of these things, I think it's complete nonsense. I think a lot of the critiques of healthcare are complete nonsense. There's a great um, blog called Random Critical Analysis, and he has this a ton of articles about healthcare kind of going over statistical analyses of healthcare and showing how a lot of the common knowledge and things you hear from the Commonwealth, uh, Commonwealth healthcare and all this stuff are mostly nonsense and don't really hold up. He also goes over you know, life expectancy and stuff like that. And again, I, I recognize there are plenty of critiques. I have tons of critiques of the US healthcare system. I have tons of critiques of how we run, but I think a lot of the leftist critiques miss the mark and they point to things that are issues that don't exist or issues that can easily be solved through um, market methods. And so to kind of finalize this, I'll go back to a few a few things that you, you kind of talked about and that we were just talking about. You know, we have like the uh, the counterfactuals, right? The actual data methods, which, you know, not yeah, everybody... Just, sorry, just real quick. I wanted to ask you if um, <laughs> this is more of a joke thing, but in their counterfactual projections for what SARS Russia would have looked like had it continued, with you know liberal economic reforms, did they factor in the ten-year boom and bust cycles in there as well? <laughs> yeah, I mean it depends on if they're going to have a central bank or not. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um. So you know, the, besides the actual data counterfactuals, which we had, I, I gave two. Um, you also have people like Robert Service who made these predictions just based off of the information that they had. Um, so he's a historian, and then there's also a book called Um, Faulty Foundations. Soviet economic policies by uh, two economists. And they, they kind of basically say the same thing here as Robert Service says, the new economic policy would have been way better. Um, and finally, I can kind of wrap up with like the, the environmental stuff, like the climate, right? Because I, I, I specifically put this in here about ecocide in the USSR, which, you know, you said you don't defend the USSR to your dying breath, and that's good. I, I'm happy to hear that, but... I think I mean, this I'll defend is... a surprising amount of stuff. I was already defending gulags, but uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think this is something that's very important because we saw in you know basically the uh, the big socialist state that that lasted for for decades. We saw this being a severe issue, and you know it's basically the worst polluter in the history of mankind, um, and largely because of you know the, like more than the, the ways US, they allocated more than, like, even the U.S. military now. Yeah. Yeah, so that's going to be my last closing thing is like, I just think for next time, I'm going to have to look more into some of the specific topics that we discussed for a bit and try to also prepare like a slideshow, kind of like what you did, because I think it is a very convincing and it's a good way to present a lot of information more than just giving like general overviews like I've tended, tended to do. But um, what was the one thing you were saying about inequality, like actually not being any worse than it was over the last 40 years or in the seventies or whatever. It's like, I guess that's also my overall point. It's like, I kind of hope you guys are right. And I mean, like you guys, meaning like the ANCAPs, like the people who even critically support the US. Um, I say it all the time on my show. I hope the neoliberals are right. I hope that they are, you know, going to take over. I don't know, I guess what's the neoliberal goal is to take over the world under NATO and the EU or whatever, and then slowly make everybody's life better by instituting neoliberal 
democratic reforms and uh, liberalizing the economies and everything. And I hope that they're right that like whatever that system comes up with as far as counteracting the environmental damage that it does is enough to actually save humanity. Like, I hope that's the case. I just don't see that being possible. But yeah, I mean, if you want to continue making that case to me over however many nights you want to do it, that's great. Yeah, and I definitely take the exact opposite position. I hope the Marxists are wrong. <laughs> well, and that's um, what I'm saying. I do too. Like, it would be it would be great if we were. Or wrong. actually, it's the same position, I guess. Yeah, I hope the Marxists are wrong. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, we, yeah. I would love to go over the inequality statistics. Um, I, I have a lot of great stuff on that. Yeah, so I'll kind of finalize it again with the, with the climate stuff. Um, I think primarily to like what they point out here, what we call the economic calculation problem. Um, this leads to a huge waste of raw materials and you know the misallocation of resources and that's a that's really a very bad environment thing and i think um inherently a capitalist system is much more incentivized to do good for the environment i um, mean even even in these capitalist systems when we have these regulations like we had the cafe standard for cars in the in the 70s and they're like okay we're gonna have these regulations to kind of fix the environment they end up just causing more problems like the cafe standards they caused more deaths and car accidents that cause more children to die being run over by cars because, you know, throwing out these crazy standards and trying to centrally plan the production of private companies just ends up with a huge mess. If you're just shooting shots in the dark, trying to solve problems instead of letting the problems be solved through the market mechanisms, I think that always leads to issues. And I'm a firm believer in the environmental Kuznets curve. I think there's a lot of evidence for that as well which I don't have here, but you know, if we want to talk about climate change in the future, that would be great. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's about it. I think, um, uh, so as long as you have the economic calculation problem, which I think is my overarching, overarching argument here, like shows, you know, why socialists uh, failed in these different studies and why they failed environmentally. I think that kind of encapsulates everything. I think so as long as you have this, it's definitely not preferable to have a socialist economy. And yeah, so that's it. Yeah, I mean, that's as good a place as any to wrap up. I'll just say, like I said, I hope that the capitalists are right. And I hope that, you know, the, again, we see it as capitalism already, capitalism already controls the majority of the world. So I would just hope that that starts to turn things around for the better and curbs emissions and pollution and solves the environmental and extinction crisis uh, with the neoliberal reforms or whatever its solutions are. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to, to doing this again. Uh, I appreciate it. it. Was like I said, it was pretty cordial and pretty easy to do. So uh, just hit me up when you want to do this again. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we'll wrap this up. Thank you everyone for watching. Um, if you're watching on my YouTube, go ahead and subscribe. If you're watching in his podcast, don't subscribe. Don't watch <laughs> socialist content, bro. What are you doing? Um, anyways, all right. Record so that you got the video. Yeah, I recorded it before. So I got a recording now. If you want to do an introduction first, then I can do my introduction, however you want to do it. Um, yeah, I can do that. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Mikey Him. And tonight, my guest is Prax Ben. He, him as well. How's it going, Ben? It's going great. How are you doing? Doing well. And we're going to follow up on our previous discussion. We had a debate a couple weeks ago. And so I will probably be releasing these as a combo episode. That's typically how I like to do it. So it'll be a two-hour compilation of the two hour-long discussions that we had. Um, but yeah, Ben, if you want to just pick up and talk about, or do your intro, I guess. Yeah, for my audience, um, you may remember the debate I had with Turn Leftist a few weeks back. I had a whole slideshow presentation, a lot of stuff to unpack. So um, I thought it would be cool to give him a couple of weeks, 
come back, go over some of the things, talk a little bit about it, talk a little bit about some of the uh, comments on YouTube. Um, I don't really have an intro. I decided I don't really need a slideshow or anything this time since I can always just go back and reference all the stuff we talked about last time. Um, I guess there's only one thing I want to bring up starting off, and that would be uh, some of the comments on the uh, YouTube video, because I was a bit curious about this. I was hoping for a response in the comments, but I didn't get one, so yeah. at least I don't think I did. No, I didn't. Um, so I wanted to, like touch on this in the actual discussion but we can we can get to this in a little bit i'll let you okay. do your intro after well I'll, well I'll go over the comment well i mean that may, that may actually tie intro. into what um to what i have to start off with but go ahead mention the comment okay, sure. if, uh, if you have something specific yeah so this person said about you imagine doing zero research into the philosophy you quote believe end of quote and then coming to a debate to prove you're right so you know very hostile comment there uh, turn leftist responds, yeah, I can't believe, very sarcastically, obviously, yeah, I can't believe I didn't have a sim similarly cherry-picked slideshow to rebut each topic I didn't know was going to be brought up beforehand, LMAO. Socialism has truly, has been truly owned, LFMAO, laughing emoji. Yeah. Um, and I sort of responded to it. And I said, well, cherry picking would mean that I ignored the overall trend in evidence and only picked what would agree with me. Since I showed some things that disagree with me, some things that showed there would be trade-offs, that can't be the case. And since, you know, I, I didn't say this exactly, but, you know, since I showed large swaths of evidence, I think it, I think that's pretty safe from cherry-picking, right? And then I said, basically, the only counterexamples you gave was China's response to the 2008, res 2008 crash and the baby formula shortage, which by definition that would be cherry picking since those are just two specific points um, that are isolated, isolated examples against the overall trend in the data. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, and then actually, you said that's... I misrepresented the U S role in the coup, which I said, well, that's, that has nothing to do with what I just said. Um, I was hoping for a response specifically about the whole cherry picking thing. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. I mean, so I don't like uh, YouTube comments in particular for some, I don't know if it's just the app that I use, um, just a quick plug for YouTube advanced. If anybody doesn't use that, like fucking use it. Cause it's a great app for using YouTube if you have an Android, but, um, it particularly lacks, I guess, in viewing comments. So a lot of times I've responded to comments and I will often respond to even the wrong one. Sometimes I don't think that's what happened there, but, um, I also can't see the entirety of comments very easily. It's like really, it's just a weird interface. And I don't like it, but I would, and I also, I probably just, uh, was getting lazy and just wanted to save it for the next time that we got together to talk here anyway. But that actually does get into what I kind of wanted to cover the first time, which is like, I have done a couple of these with Zulu, and now this will be the second one with you. And I've noticed, and even pointed out a couple of times, um, this repeated pattern where we all come away from it both thinking that we've won. And our guys on like our fans and comment sections all that think that we've each won, despite us both coming away with that same view. And I wanted to ask you, like, in, I guess in the lieu of making some quote, quote unquote progress, I hope, um, I previously looked at that as kind of like content farming, basically, because I like that. I like that we can both come away with that. But maybe I'm like killing the uh, golden goose here. But like, what is it that you think made you feel like you won from the last time that we talked? Um, I don't think I've ever claimed that I won the debate. If I'm not mistaken, I mean, you can correct me if I. Or I just I mean like say that. Okay, maybe I guess I'm just assuming that. But like, based on like the comments and the discussions that we had in the sections afterwards, um, but I, I just took that to be the case that you felt like you came away with that with a. Yeah, a I mean, better explanation for why capitalism is materially better than socialism. 
than I did. Yeah, I mean, uh, as for as for the debate itself, right? Like, if we're if we're talking about the comments, you know, like the ones I specifically pointed out, I was just responding specifically to what you said, right? So if you say, "Well, mm -hmm. this is cherry picking," I'm just saying, "Well, I don't think it's cherry picking, and this is why," and I'm giving you a reason, right? I think in the debate um, over whether or not capitalism was materially better than socialism, I presented an argument as to why this is true. And then I provided a ton of empirical evidence to prove this argument was correct. And I didn't feel like there was anything really going against that at all. Um, the criticisms I did receive, like I said, the formula, the 2008 crash, I pointed out, well, those were problems literally caused by economic planning, right? By state economic planning. So I don't see any legitimacy in claiming this problem was caused by state economic planning in one part of the world and in another part of the world, they didn't have this exact problem at this exact time. Therefore, that means state economic planning is good or socialism is good. I just, that wasn't very convincing. As for who won the debate, I mean, sure, maybe I won the debate if that's the way I feel, but that's, that's the explanation as for mm. why I think I had a, a better uh, outcome with that. But I mean, you know, you, we're obviously going to have different opinions. The, uh, point of having you on here and having the debate is of course you know content we we want to get our uh, our funds in you know for our youtube money stuff like that but also um i like you know i have a bunch of followers some of them weren't too much into politics some of them were very deep into cringe politics and so you know when they come over start getting into some of the economics austrian economics libertarianism they're not going to know how to defend it right off the bat. So it's good having debates out there and having showing people like this is how you respond to these points. That's very important because oftentimes I'm just sort of giving an argument somewhere, whether it's TikTok or YouTube or my Twitter or wherever. Some follower will like grab a hold of it and they'll bring it off to a Discord server or whatever it is, and then they'll use it against people who are dishonest or bad faith, and they're going to come out with their debunks. And then the person doesn't know what to say because they don't know enough about my argument to defend my argument, right? So I want to show them, this is how I defend my argument. This is how you should defend your arguments. And then also, I hope that maybe there's some socialist out there who find it convincing, which has happened before, of course. Um, but you know, it's, it doesn't happen super, super often. So I think there's a lot of different reasons why I, uh, okay. I do the debates. And then, like I said, I mean, I think, I think my argument was better overall, and I, I explained why. So that's, that's my position. Okay. No, I mean, it sounds like we both have similar goals with these, actually. Like, I like to, I say it all the time on my show, I like to give people talking points and rebuttals for common talking points from the right, from center, from neoliberals, from everywhere, um, because it is something that we're just kind of inundated by. Um, but I kind of want to go over why I thought that I came away kind of benefiting from our last discussion, which was that I did kind of feel like your slideshow was kind of just lacking. And, and I was like a little disappointed by it, to be honest. Like, it's just, to me, it seemed like it was very obviously biased and selective. And I don't know, I mean, for as short as it was, like, I don't know how that can make the case in any kind of general way that socialism performs better than capitalism, or I mean, sorry, capitalism performs better than socialism as far as like people's material interests are concerned. And I'll address that, you know, more when I get into my little, hopefully 10 to 15 minute at most uh, version of a response to a slideshow to that. Um, I don't know, but I, that, I mean, it's all to say, like, I don't really find like, I think of that all as kind of like the Reddit style of arguing, which is that you like spam a bunch of links or whatever, like cite a bunch of studies and everything. And to me, that's like, 
typically in my experience, it's what people do when they don't have like a comprehensive understanding of like historical events or like, you know, grander things than that they can explain in like layman's terms. And that's usually what I like to do. And I guess I was just a little disappointed by your commenters' responses to that, treating it as if I was just, you know, saying things that I feel as opposed to just trying to relate my understanding of things, having been researching and looking at these things for several years, having previously been a libertarian and come out of that into Marxism, uh, trying to just like explain my perspective that way. So I don't know. I basically just came away from that. And then with the interactions in the comments, feeling like I was disappointed and kind of confirmed what I had previously believed, which is that a lot of the libertarian like ANCAP audiences, like a bunch of like young white dudes who have a preconceived narrative that they're just looking for someone to confirm for them. And, and I mean, that's fine. That happens a lot. I just, I don't know. I did originally post, I realized we've gotten very far from this. I did originally post on Reddit and that's how we found each other. We're like getting some, asking somebody to come and defend capitalism and in the modern day. And that's just why I thought it was like odd that you have to like go back to like Chile, like decades ago, talk about the USSR and everything. And I, again, I think that's telling when, you know, people on the right tend to ignore like modern day social successes. But to point that out, actually, I'll, that should lead me into what I actually want to do. So I think I want to share my screen here. Let's see. Oh, it says you have a uh, disabled participant screen sharing. Can you give me the terms for that? Give me one uh, second. No, it looks like it worked. So can you see that? So I'm going to try and blow through this as quick as possible. I'm going to keep an eye on the clock. It's 13 after now. And I don't want to go too long with it. I'm actually going to probably skip a whole bunch of other stuff because I don't want to spend too long in each section. So I'll start with just like death toll of capitalism. Because, you know, honestly, I really expected, like I said, to get better arguments from even your commenters than the, you know, 100 million killed thing that like, it just seems like a hack argument to me, but whatever. To, to address kind of the same kind of thing. So I have like a quick timeline of capitalist imperialism resulting in roughly 1.6 billion people being killed by capitalism. I'm going to read through a bunch of them. Um, sorry if it's like annoying because there's a lot of stuff that's like also written in text, but this is also going to go up for my feed and audio format. So I do have a sidebar here. If we need it, we can probably come back to it later, but it's just a definition of what is imperialism because I feel like a lot of the responses to these, when I quote these genocides of capitalism is going to be, well, that wasn't capitalism because they were committed by states and the whole point of that is it ignores the cooperation of states and private enterprises when it comes to colonialism, colonialism for the purpose of expanding capitalist empires, which is or capitalist markets, which is needed for capitalism. That's like a prerequisite for it. So starting in the 1400s uh, to ongoing, we have the Native American genocide, roughly 114 million people killed by that. Um, 1400s up to 1865, the African slave trade, another 150 million. This is just for the U.S. Uh, so far. 1800s current day, up to the current day, the U.S. aggression in Latin America, another roughly 5 million deaths. Uh, 1898, the American War versus the Philippines, 3 million. 1980s, Tamils killed by U.S. backed Sri Lankan government, another 30,000. Um, some of these are inline sources, but most of the sources are at the end of the document because it was getting like unwieldy having them all in there. There's like a ton of sources at the end of this. So, And I will post, of course, this whole document and everything. The link will be in the show notes for anybody else who wants to check it out. Uh, you got 1941 to 42 invasion of the Philippines. Um, sorry, this should be a separate line. There was another 650,000 in the U.S. Civil War. Again, like people might dispute that that's the result of capitalism, but talking about trying to use human labor for free to have, you know, zero overhead for your labor. Um, so it's like obviously driven by profit motive there. 
1950 to 53, the Korean War, 10 million people. That's like literally a genocide that the U.S. committed to prevent a communist, uh, democratically like formed government um, and has been waging war on it ever since. 1954, Guatemala, uh, the coup killed 300,000 people in that. Uh, you know, Chiquita Banana Company, still around today, doing fine. Uh, 1955 to 75, Vietnam War, including Cambodia and Laos, another 10 million. 1961, U.S. intervention in the Congo, 5 million. Uh, 1967, U.S.-backed dictator General Suharto, uh, 1.2 million. 1974, U.S. Fa- man- or, sorry, U.S.-made famine in Bangladesh, 100,000. 99, U.S. bombing of Yugoslavia, 20,000. 1990, Iraq, U.S. selling poison gas to Saddam, 400,000. Uh, 1990 to 1991, Iraq Desert Storm Operation, another 500,000 deaths. 1990, U.S. imposed sanctions on Iraq, 1 million. 91, U.S. bombing of Iraq water supply, another 500,000 due to that. 2001 to to 2021, Afghanistan, the war on terrorism, 1.2 million deaths there. And 2001 to the present in Iraq, the war on terrorism, uh, 1.3 million. And 2011, the NATO intervention in Libya, 100,000 deaths due to that. There's another section on Japanese imperialism. I can uh, just sort of skip over that. I'm going to, like I said, put this, put this all in the show notes. I don't want to spend too much time on each section. We have British imperialism, uh, just talking about some things like the Second Boer War, 75,000 deaths there. This is also like when concentration camps were invented. That's like literally where they started. Uh, Irish potato famine, 1.5 million there. And I just wrote like a little blurb there because I started to write some brief summaries for a few of these, but obviously I couldn't get to them all. So a traditional thing that people believe is that it was like a famine caused by purely natural factors, but historians have since concluded that Ireland continued to export large quantities of food, primarily to Great Britain during the blight. In cases such as livestock and butter, research suggested exports may have actually increased or had actually increased during the potato famine. In 1847 alone, records indicate that commodities such as peas, beans, rabbits, fish, and honey continued to be exported from Ireland, even as the great hunger ravaged the countryside. Resources there. Uh, let's see, from the mid-1800s to the 1900s, there were famines in India due to British colonialism, totaling up to about 10 million deaths there. Uh, the 1943 Bengal famine alone, 3 million were killed in that. Again, it's the same kind of story as the potato famine. The typical excuse for the famine from apologists for the British Empire or colonialism in general is that this was simply because of the war or natural factors, but this isn't true. The famine was caused was not caused by drought as previous famines had been, and while it was not entirely human-made, it would have been drastically reduced in severity, if not entirely avoided, if England, particularly Churchill, had, pri- had, sorry, had prioritized the welfare of Indian people and not insisted on maintaining imperial control over India, increasing authoritarian control during its independence movements, and basing policy decisions on blatantly racist beliefs about India and its citizens. And a lot of that is described in detail in that Guardian article that they talk about there. Uh, the British occupation of India resulted in about 20 million deaths. Uh, there's another description similar to the 1866 Orissa famine. I'm not going to go through that, but again, it'll be in the notes, but it's another couple of paragraphs explaining. Now, again, it was like an avoidable famine, and it was basically just that the British government considered Indian lives expendable, and that's kind of like the story of colonialism in general. Um, and then there's another just list of like miscellaneous capitalist nations um, and their colonial adventures, Dutch East Indies, Somali child famine deaths, things like that. Again, I'm not going to go through this entire list because it gets really long. And then you get to about like 1.6 million killed. If you total it all up, I removed some of those just because I found them to be like 
I wanted to be a little bit conciliatory because I thought they were just like ridiculous. I had found, you know, this is a combination of different kind of lists and stuff that I had found in other places. So let's see. Also, I just wanted to mention the scramble for Africa. That's uh, something that I really like listening to. It's a podcast series by Justin Poder. Um, and he's got some really long and in-depth and good explanations of different colonial events, uh, different countries in Europe that were colonizing Africa at different times. And a lot of good explanations about the history of that for people who are unfamiliar. Uh, so we've got the Opium Wars, 1839 to 1860. Another quick summary of that, British privateers seeking profits imported opium into China, violating Chinese law, and soon resulted in approximately 10% of the population addicted to opium. Uh, this will come up again later in other profit-driven opium epidemics. Uh, let's see. Another just list of capitalist atrocities and everything. Let's see. I, know this, I have another section here. It's just the danger of right-wing ideologies, uh, ideologies in general. And it's, you know, kind of just talking about their terrorist tendencies. And uh, this was just released the other day. This is November 30th. The summary of terrorism threat to the United States. They say the United States remains in a heightened threat environment. Lone offenders and small groups motivated by a range of ideological beliefs and or personal grievances continue to pose a persistent and lethal, and lethal threat to the homeland. Uh, it's another... Kind of descriptive paragraph, but I wanted to get to this point here. Targets of potential violence include public gatherings, faith-based faith -based institutions, the LGBTQI plus community, schools, and ra racial and religious minorities, government facilities and personnel, U.S. critical infrastructure, uh, the media, and perceived ideological opponents. And some domestic violent extremists have expressed grievances based on perceptions that the government is overstepping its constitutional authorities or failing to perform its duties. Historically, issues related to immigration and abortion have been cited by prior attackers as inspiration for violence, potential changes in border security enforcement policy, an increase in non-citizens attempting to enter the U.S. or other immigration-related developments may heighten these calls for violence. And this is where I editorialize here, that's why I put an asterisk, but this violence like, that is done by right-wingers is directed at marginalized people. And these are not people who have government control or control over policy. And the, they're the citizens that are of the same class as the perpetrators of the violence themselves. So far from weakening the state, the rightist direct action actually provides the excuse for increased state power and surveillance. And that document, I, I linked to it up there, but it goes on at length to describe the various measures that the U.S. government will be taking ostensibly to combat this threat of right-wing terrorism. I have disputes about what the U.S. does as far as like its police or military or even DHS to actually combat right-wing terrorism. I feel like they do a lackluster effort at that and for a lot of ideological reasons. But um, most of the measures that they're going to take are increased law enforcement and anti-terrorism agency power, increased cooperation between them. And that's the exact opposite of what, what anti-statists should want. But also the only option that an authoritarian capitalist government like the U.S. can offer since combating crime by increasing the standard of living of, of the citizens through strength and social programs and emphasis on human needs, rather than punishment, despite that being the best proven way to do so, is not an option as it would require getting, like taxing the very wealthy people who have an outsized influence on government policy. So, and then I just cited the Princeton study here because it's relevant. Like multivariate analysis indicates that economics elites, economic elites and organized groups representing business interests have substantial independent impacts on US government policy while average citizens and mass-based interest groups have little or no independent influence. The results provide substantial support for theories of economic elite domination and for theories of biased pluralism, but not for theories of majoritarian electoral democracy or majoritarian pluralism, which is all just to say that a long-term study 
of policy decisions and who they benefit, who pushes for those policies and who pushes for policies that did not get implemented. The long arc of that story is that over the last 40 to 50 years, the elites have gotten every single policy issue that they've wanted that significantly affects people's lives or economics, and the working class have not been able to influence policy pretty much at all compared to that. Um, R squared 0.074. Anyways, continue. <clears throat> what does that mean? <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's just statistic stuff. I'll, I'll get to that later. Okay. <clears throat> Let's see. So this is more just like the white supremacist violence. I'm just going to skip over that. Um, oh, and then here, I just kind of want to wrap up. I'll just wrap it up with this. I think I've had enough. So this was what I had in response to the Allende stuff. I just looked into that a bit. Um, so agitation for coups against Allende began before he even took office. They had nothing to do with his performance as president or his policy, let alone, let alone their economic effects on the population. There were no violent groups associated with Allende, as is often accused. Uh, the so-called Chile miracle that Pinochet apologists and Allende critics tout never actually happened. And the only source claiming that the CIA was not directly involved in overthrowing Allende is from the CIA itself. So it, like a more in-depth explanation. Uh, let me see if I can just read some of the quick hits off of this. Uh, so this historian Stephen J. Cern notes that even Allende suspected there would be a coup even before he took office. And in between the time he was elected and actually took office, several attempts were already underway. While the CIA may not have directly overthrown Allende, they did amplify and assist the right-wing forces in Chile, including several plans for coups and meetings that took place with far-right leaders business and business owners. This was directly ordered by Nixon. The CIA devoted $10 million to overthrowing Allende. All of this before he took office, defeating the argument that the coup was due to his failed policies. The most prominent of the right-wing paramilitary groups was Patria y Libertad, Fatherland and Liberty, which originated right after Allende's September 4th elections during so-called Track 2. It received $38,500 from the CIA in an effort to create tension and a possible pretext for intervention. Let's see. So this is quoting from the U.S. Senate Select Committee on Intelligence Activities Staff Report, Covert Action in Chile, 1963, 73, 75. Um, and I got it from Wikipedia. The Nationalist Front Homeland and Freedom, FNPL, also known only as Homeland and Freedom, PYL, is a paramilitary organization, Chilean of far-right, right, yeah, paramilitary, a Chilean paramilitary organization of far-right, fascist, and ultra-nationalist ideology. Uh, it was formed April 1st of 1971 to, to oppose by political violence, sabotage, and terrorism the government, the socialist government of Salvador Allende and the popular unions. So they blew up pipelines, sabotaged factories, staged strikes, and, and they were funded by the U.S. Um, Right-wing violent groups were committing acts of terrorism, assassinations, assassinations, rioting, and other political violence and blaming it on the left which was then used as further justification for the coup by Pinochet, Pinochet apologists. Uh, there's also the Taknazo and Tancatazo insurrections. And all of these were, the U.S. is involved in all of these, uh, what do you call it? All these groups, they're funding them, they're arming them, and they're, they're sponsoring, like they're, they're helping them out in every way possible. And they admit to all of this. And so, Allende did not touch the Chilean parliamentary system, replace the Supreme Court, and any political parties, or take control of the military. Um, and Pinochet was, by objective measures, the greatest mass murderer in Chile's history. So the only source that I found like, of the CIA saying that they didn't have any direct influence on Allende being overthrown by Pinochet was them saying that. And it, it was like a document that they were releasing that they had no involvement, but they admit to arming and funding like every other right-wing who attempting group in Chile at the time. So we can either like believe that 
they didn't have a hand in Pinochet's and also that, you know, all the other attempts to overthrow Allende didn't have any effect in like weakening him or, you know, ripening the, I guess the conditions for a coup by Pinochet. But it just seems like, it just seems really silly to me to, to take that tact and like believe, just take the U S at their word. Um, and I feel like me as the statist, I should be doing that rather than the anti-statist. But that's, uh, that's pretty much like most of what I got here. I, this goes on. This is like a document that I've been compiling, uh, just grabbing some sources from other places. But I have a lot of things in here that I can reference if we need to. But I'll hand it to you since I've been talking for about 15 minutes about what I wanted to do. Uh, what kind of responses do you have to any of that? And hopefully we can just spend <clears throat> the rest of the half hour with uh, just discussing anything we've got so far. Yeah, sure. So I've heard the whole like death toll of capitalism thing many times. Uh, of course, um, I've made numerous responses to it on TikTok, both using statistics, um, like taking where I take communists at their at face value, which is a ridiculous thing to do in this case. But uh, yeah, I tried like, okay, what if we take this at face value and actually said, all right, what if these numbers are real? How do they measure up against the communist numbers? They don't come even close. Right. Because what you're doing here is you're looking at back. I think one of the earliest dates I saw was like 1630, 1630 to 2020, basically. Right. That's a, that's a long time where many, 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 many billions of people lived. So 1.6 billion people in that time period is actually a very small percentage of people. Whereas if you look at specific communist atrocities like the Holodomor, for example, and you take the statistics for that, then it's a much, much higher percentage of the population than any of these cap than all of these capitalist atrocities put together or you know you can do that with any with with uh what happened in mao's china any of these instances or congregate them all together just like you congregate the whole capitalism death toll so even at the face value basically what it comes to is you have like in the single digits of percentage of the human population since this time saying oh well this is this is because of capitalism and then it's double digits percentage of the populations for people who lived under communist regimes. So that, that's a that's a huge difference. And that's taking the communists at face value, which I wouldn't, because I think it's I think it's insane attributing all these things to capitalism, right? Like at the very least, if people are debating on socialism or capitalism, then you've got to kind of go with the person's definition, right? Because if I was debating like a, a socialist anarchist, I wouldn't be like, oh well, look what happened in the USSR. Right. Because he would say, oh, that's not what I want. I'll say, OK, fair enough. Let's debate about what you want. But you openly say you want or I like at least to a certain extent what the USSR did, what Mao's China did, what current China does, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So I am like being fair to you, which I never brought up any like 10 million or 100 million numbers. But if I did or I went that direction. I would be being entirely fair to you because at least if I was using good numbers, because you actually say, this is what I want. And this is what I think is good. Whereas this saying, oh, well, pff, the Irish potato famine. I mean, I think that's ridiculous because what would have happened is if you stopped exporting food from Ireland, which I mean, maybe you could have done that, then the effects of it just moves on to another country, right? It just moves on to England because the famine's still there. There's still a huge lack of food. It's just now the people in England aren't getting food and then you just have another famine, right? So, I mean, the, the ideal situation is you don't have a famine and how you would have ended up without a famine is if property rights would have been respected. If you didn't have the, the, the corn tariffs, 
you didn't have all these uh, all this protectionism that England was implementing from the central government. I think it would have been a much better uh, situation and actually, you know, respecting the Irish people's um, property rights, which is what real capitalists do. Um, and, you know, the whole like uh, native, you covered a lot of different things. Um, I mean, like I said, yeah, I, I, I reject any notion that just government action is capitalism, right? The whole idea that pursuing some sort of profit motive is capitalism, I think is ridiculous because profit is simply gaining more outputs from your inputs, which is what anything is, right? What any reasonable person's goal is, even if it's not through a actual monetary value, right? So even if it's not measured in, in the US dollars, right? You, you want more, more land, you want more subjects, you want more whatever it is. And that's a constant that's always there. We saw that in we see that in every human society, right? They're not all going about it the same way, but that's still a goal of, to reach some sort of profit. So when it's like uh, the U.S. doing things with Native Americans, I mean, if we look at people who actually respected property rights, like I've talked about before, the Acadians who went and drained marshlands that were being unused by the Native Americans because they wanted to, you know, have new land to actually homestead new land to actually work on rather than taking the native americans land that's what i'm advocating for right i'm advocating for property rights if something go, goes grossly against those property rights that's way way away from um what i want but even then even then it's my opinion that most of these regimes were far less evil than the communist ones at very least less maybe far less for for, for some of them um, but there's there's a lot of different details there, but I'll just kind of move on yeah, that's a cool. little bit. Can I can I'm I respond to a couple of those points? Um, I'm I, I'm I'm gonna lose. Could you scroll up a little bit? Let me just see what what we what we got here. Oh, you know what? Actually, let's just let's just stay on this for one more second because I pulled up some stuff here, right? So I'm I'm used like I said I'm used to the whole. How do I minimize this? I don't know. I can't even there go. Go ahead and get back screen. to the. Okay. Um. Here, I'm actually going to share for a second here. So this, I'm used to this whole like capitalism death toll thing, and they'll take things like, oh, look at the uh, aggregate starvation deaths globally. Look at the aggregate whatever, whatever, whatever. Globally. I did also skip. I forgot to mention. I did want to do the section that I have. It would only take another five minutes or so. Maybe I can get to it in a bit, but. It was accomplishments of socialist states. Uh, oh, yeah, you know, I saw that. We can to... we can get that to that a little bit later, because um, I wanted to see that actually. Because I, I saw it down at the bottom, right? So they'll show like all these things in aggregate and be like, "Well, look at this. Look at what capitalism is doing." But the fact of the matter is, I mean, every everybody knows this, right? You go throughout time. This is daily supply of calories per person. What it does is it improves everywhere. Go throughout time. Death rate from malnutrition. This is. The 90s, it doesn't go as far back, but regardless, it improves everywhere. Africa, South America, you go to child mortality rates. Yeah, a lot of that is due to socialism. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, all this is the socialist countries, every single one. Yeah. Real, real. So true. Um, well, I mean, life expectancy. According to you, like, that's the whole thing about it is they're everywhere. socialists sometimes and the socialists, they're not socialists other times. Like, this is my whole thing. Are you touting the advances of these countries that didn't have states? Are these not status countries without central banks? Because that was like your definition of socialism last time. My definition of socialism was central banks? 
Yeah, that's what we got stuck on there. We moved on to it from it, but you said something about like Karl Marx uh, says that like central banks are necessary or like a what like a core necessity for socialism. You were saying that like you were your premise last time was that you were willing to defend a lot of the accomplishments of America because it was probably the preeminent close closest to capitalist state. I guess maybe that's I'm I'm assuming your premise there, but um, you said something about uh, yeah, what did what did it say? Um, Shit. I lost what I just said. Uh, well, uh, so so yeah, I, I can respond to what you said. Like what what I was saying was you pointed specifically to the 2008 recession, and I said, well, we can't say that's the fault of capitalism if it was caused by the central bank. And I I, I cited, you know, you can go look at the the um, M2 money supply and 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 the um, interest rates and stuff like that around that period, and you can see clearly there was a lot of um, intervention through the Federal Reserve, through the monetary system that the, the central government was doing, that the central government's cronies were doing. And I, I reject any notion that that can be blamed on capitalism, right? Like, I I, I, I understand that you have to reject that because it kind of dismantles your whole argument, but you have to understand, like, you already have a planned economy. It's just planned by wealthy elites who control the government. They use that as the tool to do it, but they still do it. Whereas All right, yeah, the countries thing. They, yeah, I, I, I kind of forgot about that, but yeah, we can we can get to that too. Um, I recognize that, you know, each of these countries are going to have government to some extent, of course, some more than others, but we can trace these specific things to what happened, right? Like we can say, oh, look, the 2008 recession happened because of the central bank, right? We can say, look, this atrocity happened because the government had this much power and the, the private citizens certainly didn't do it. We can say, look. All these improvements came after we liberalized this market, after we did this. You know, like we can do that. And that's what I did last time. That was what the whole point was, right? It was to. Yeah, but I don't understand how you can make the case to me that what resulted in the 2008 crash was the government doing something that was in the interest of working class people and against business interests. And therefore, it was something socialist, as opposed to like when I say that China does something and it is in the interest of working class people and therefore it is a socialist measure that they are taking. And it materially improves the lives of people. Whereas like the government here deregulates the financial industry, allows some people to gamble on derivatives, and then it crashes the entire financial market and poor working people suffer as a result and the elites are still fine. Like, I, I just don't understand how you could possibly make the case that that is socialism and not capitalism. I don't, I, I don't see the deregulation leading up to the 2008 market. I mean... I'm, I'm, I'm I also don't really want to get stuck on the 2008 market crash because I feel like that's an unnecessary sticking point. Like we could be looking at the entire arc of like, I don't know, world history and looking at countries. Yeah, and the arc of world history, as you just presented it, is literally everything that ever happened was capitalism until maybe the USSR came along. And so what I'm showing you is, okay, if we're going by that metric, then just look at the entire arc of human history. And the fact of the matter is all these things, every measure of material conditions improved. And to say, oh, where where was the socialism back in the 1940, like where where's the socialism? Where is it? Can you explain to me how all these things happen because of socialism? Because I don't see it. Okay, so what's your like? I have this the quick talking point that China lifted 850 million people out of poverty, and 90 90 something percent. It's in that document that I had up. 90 something percent of the people lifted out of poverty in the world in the last 40 years were in China. So, do you have like your yeah? How is, response to that? Like, how was China? What was China's plan to lift people out of poverty? What do you mean? They was it to increase? Like, was it to increase social spending? No. 
No, that was not increase social spending. That's absolutely what they did. They've been it doing was that for the a long plan time. to reduce poverty was increased social spending. Could you show me that when they said that, like back in the seventies when they started all this? Where did they no, say I mean, that? They never said that. That never happened. I mean, right? I and even if it did happen, then why paying. has why has income inequality and wealth inequality been drastically increasing in China since then? Since like the seventies. Well, is it because they're there? redistributing more wealth? How does that happen? That's a complete paradox. What, where is you this? could definitely make the it. case that when they liberalized their economy because they had to enter the market, you know, with the rest of the world, and they had their plan, like literally Deng Xiaoping had the plan to take the manufacturing away from the West and the US until they became an inextricable part of the world economy, and then use that power to leverage and build socialism and without getting toppled by the US as every other country had done when they would nationalize resources, nationalize their industries, do anything that would you know, threaten the U.S. hegemony of the global financial markets. So that's like so socialism with Chinese characteristics in a nutshell. It started with Deng, and a lot of people want to pretend so, that he was yeah. Like so it wasn't capitalist. it wasn't social spending, right? It okay, was sure. I mean, you're you're saying that, but I don't find that to be the case because that's they have been lifting people out of poverty. They have been. It building, wasn't from like, social spending. How are you? I can tell you that much. Okay, right? sure. It wasn't. No, from, I don't. I don't accept uh, that the, at all. I don't whole, know where you're getting this. You're this making that whole up. notion of. Oh, well, they planned the liberalization. Ha, checkmate. I think that's, I think that's dumb, honestly. Just, just being honest. I don't you, find right? that to be like, really an argument. I mean, I feel like that's a big cope energy. You, like, no, 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 no. It doesn't like make any sense. Oh, oh, we actually, okay, think about it this way. The West, the, you, like your entire ideology, the fear response to the West in decline because of the inevitable so conditions of capitalism. No, so I mean, true. that is what it is. Like, I ask people to come here and defend capitalism in the modern day. And tell me the story of how the U.S. reverses the trends of growing inequality, growing instability. You know, just the I don't see the growing inequality either. Where's that? Well, the decline in material conditions. Of, yeah, there is growing inequality. I mean, you can deny it all you want, but like I ask people to come and tell me the story of how that gets reversed, and you come in and like attack socialism from 50, 30, whatever many years ago, and you completely ignore modern China. And I think that that's very telling. Like you guys keep well, the argument this, was what leads to better material conditions. And I provided an argument for that, which went unrefuted. And I provide a bunch of evidence backing up that argument, which again, no, you had like a five unrefuted. page slideshow of a couple of things that you cherry picked. That's what I'm saying. Like, well, how is, how is it cherry picked? I asked you that because before. The evidence that you had was either imaginary, like literally imagining imaginary. a fake future of the USSR or like the, of Russia, if the star hadn't been overthrown. And then imagining that it was going to be steady capitalist improvement and improvements in material conditions of people's lives up to that, like beyond that, which is like a literal fantasy. So your, your critique of synthetic control the, analyses, which have been widely used throughout all of the hard sciences in the past 10 years, is that it's imaginary and that every single, every single economist, every single social scientist, every single epidemiologist, all these people who use all of these things in every single field of hard science and every single field of social science should all dismiss it because you said it's imaginary. Is that and it? That's a, that's a very big appeal to authority you got there. And that's is, cool. No, is but that it? I'm like, it's a is, question. You I'm think they should all should dis things. dismiss it because it's imaginary. I mean, that's that's obviously a huge oversimplification of synthetic control analysis. I mean, you well, can read you can read tons of awesome papers like that explain how they work, but science. you didn't bother doing that, right? So you just say, oh, it's imaginary because I can't actually respond to this. Like, that's not how it works, though. No, that's what I'm saying. Like, you have to project a fictional future of SAR-controlled Russia because you can't talk about, like, real circumstances, like, things that have happened in real countries since then. Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, we can get to my... Here, let me share my screen again. We'll get to my socialist accomplishment. But I, I talked about what happened in the USSR. Okay. Right? I talked about what happened under war communism. I talked about what happened under Stalin. I compared it, you know. 
I, I went over a lot of this stuff, right? I went I went into great How much detail. Time do we have left? Um, but I wanna I wanna go over a few other things here, right? So so like you cited the whole Princeton thing, and Princeton thing I usually see is kind of yeah, a, I saw a this article earlier, and this is like this is a hilarious rebuttal to this, but go ahead. Why? Because it's like it's like spurious at best. Like go through go through the three three uh the talking points that he's got. I went through them earlier today. It mostly relies on this fictional middle class. Like the middle class is a fictional middle class. With. Yeah, it doesn't. That is not a real thing. Like no one can actually define what the middle class is. I mean, define There's specific definitions. Like I mean, it depends on what you're looking at, right? But can't you look that up? If you're well, looking I mean, at, oh, this is people have like definitions reading this like paper and it says and, the like, middle class, right? It will, it will no give strict... a definition of it, right? But that can be different from every, like, like this paper will define middle class and use its own terms to do that, but it's... So it will define it. Well, I mean, it will use its own definition and create one, but that's not a strict definition that exists, like, outside of this specific paper. They're which one made it a definition up, own... What's that? Which, what, which paper made up a definition of middle class? Whatever paper they're citing, like, they're citing a study, right? Well, they cited they three to, different so papers. Have, Which one is it? I don't know. You tell me. You're citing the article. No, Bubba, you told me one of them made up a definition of middle class. No, I don't, I'm saying I don't that see middle how that's true. Does not have a strict definition. I don't know because, which one you're talking about. What do you mean? <laughs> what does that mean? Okay, because middle class does not exist. There are people who are workers and there are people who are owners of businesses. And some people actually do both. You could definitely have like a side business or whatever, but like the term middle class is a distinction or like a made up term that is used to obscure the distinction between people who are workers and people who are owners. And that's why they're going to rely on this thing like the middle class, because they're going to say middle class is also like these, this upper echelon of wealthy people, people who make like, however much they're going to say middle class is probably are like professional managerial class people and have the same, roughly the same interests as the 1% who are getting the policy decisions that they want. That's Princeton study is talking about. So it's not going to be a surprise when, yeah, the top 10% get the same policy decisions that they want as the 1%, which the Princeton study was originally talking about. So it's like, it's, it's silly. Like, Okay. I, I don't get this, right? You, you tell me that you read this and then you tell me, oh, well, this paper made up some random definition of middle-class that's used nowhere else. You can't tell me which one you ask me, which one, even though I didn't make the claim, it's your own claim. You say all this, well, oh, middle-class is made up. It's not made up. What like, Oh, actually, ben, it's I said it's I read this article earlier today. This specific I said middle class. Today. So, Would how do they define the? Can you show for, me? Like, no, just go ahead and give me an explanation for why this refused to Princeton study. I'm going to let you talk. Can you tell me which which paper makes up a definition of the middle class, which fits the exact definition you just gave, which would be a class which their only benefit are they they lean towards being benefit by the bourgeoisie or the or the capitalist class? Which one is it? Ben, I'm telling you. That I read the article, and they no, continually. Didn't. I said no, you didn't. Okay, bud. So they read the like. If you read the article, they will talk about the middle class getting policy decisions that they wanted as well. But what does that mean? What does it mean? Like, what is the middle class definition? You just said you know what it means. You just defined it, right? No, didn't I you? said that middle class is not a real thing in capitalist economies. It is not. You literally went through this whole thing a little while ago saying, oh, this is what the middle class is and their interest lies within the, the capitalist class. That was no, your I'm whole thing. That, you just went on. Like, no, I'm saying that typically ago. when people cite a quote unquote middle class, which is a fiction, that is typically what they will use to define it. They will use some definition that aligns them with the, with the 1%. And they will use that as, an, as a tactic to try and say that the 
that the working classes are also getting what they want out of the out of the politics or whatever. Like exactly what they're saying in this article. I, don't, I really don't know why this is so difficult for you, Ben. This seems really evasive on your part. I'm, say, I'm just saying. Your entire thing is citing a completely discredited Princeton study, which basically argues, oh, democracy doesn't exist in America. There's no, literally no democracy. It's all about big money, which isn't true. It's The whole thing's a cope to say, oh, well, actually, if we did have the real democracy, then everything would get better because all the real democracy would fix everything. But, I mean, if you actually read about you know, what What voters actually think, the knowledge voters actually have. There's a great book about that called The Myth of a Rational Voter by Brian Kaplan. There's also a bunch of great lectures of the same title by Brian Kaplan across uh, YouTube and whatnot. Then you, what you see is, oh, it is in fact just that the voters are dumb. It's not because, oh, there's a, there's a secret cabal behind the scenes uh, putting in all the act, all the policies that actually the American people are against. It's just nonsense. That's and pretty, like, uh, I don't see how you can read this entire article, which provides good arguments. And not only that, but it links to pretty in-depth papers, like going through and explaining all of these statistical problems with this paper that you cited. And then just go, oh, well, uh, they, they made up some definition of middle class. Debunked. I mean, even by your own admission, only one of the papers did that, right? So what's, what's your problem with the other two papers? I didn't read these papers. I read, the, read this article. So if, if one of the papers, if your big problem is the whole middle class thing, but only one of the papers use this middle class argument, what about the other two? What do you mean only one of the papers? Like that is all three talking points. Oh, so it is all three. Of, okay, never mind. All right. Well, yeah, I, I don't even know where to go on that. It seems like you're just saying stuff. I don't, like, what are you I don't know where about? to go. There are three talking points. The whole title of that article was three reasons that the Princeton study is wrong. The three talking points were reiterations of the same thing, were basically that the middle class and... No. no, that's not what it's called. I asked you to just tell me the talking points or tell me why I refused the Princeton study, and you keep getting stuck on this. Remember that thing. study saying American is an oligarchy? Three rebuttals say it's wrong. Those rebuttals are specific papers, right? It's referring to three different papers. And you said one of them made up some definition of middle class in its whole argument, was about no, the middle class, and that's why it's ben, wrong. I literally never said that. I literally never said that any of these specific papers made up a definition of middle class. I'm well. I mean, okay. No, that's what they that's have definitely to define, like they have to, define, they have to define that term. But I'm saying, in general, the the idea of a middle class is a fiction. And I and this is what I said. I said that they will have to define that term, and maybe all three papers will define it differently. I don't know. Like I said, I didn't read the papers. I read the article. Right. And it came off as silly to me. But like, this is why I'm saying you're not going to address the actual things in that article that you're saying debunk the Princeton study. You're just going well, to you, you say you don't care about walk it. Away. Do you care about it or do you not care about it? I asked you several times. Please give me the your explanation of why this article debunks the Princeton study. Please. But the research... But the researchers critiquing the paper found that the middle-income Americans and rich Americans actually agree on overwhelming majority of topics. Out of 1,700 bills in the Gillen's Page data set, majorities of the rich and middle class agree on 1,500. There are 616 bills both groups oppose and 978 bills both groups favor. That means the groups agree on 89.6% of the bills. That leaves only 150, 185 bills on which the rich and middle class disagree. And even there, the disagreements are small. 
On average, the group's opinions gaps on 150, uh, sorry, 185 bills is 10.9 percentage points. So say 45% of the middle class might support a bill while 55.9% of the rich support it. Right, like so the, I think I think from middle income there to middle class, like in that paragraph that you just read, it, it means the same income. thing. It means the same thing. Eh. Contextualizing. Okay, what, so they define middle income there, I guess, and then do they also define middle class as well? Sorry, I'm not. I'm not looking at the article anymore. Well, I mean, they, it's it's in the original study you cited, right? Uh, I mean. People making between uh, forty thousand five hundred and one hundred twenty-two thousand would be middle middle income in the U.S. Okay. So I mean, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people who uh, don't own businesses. Like I don't I don't see how we can take out literally millions and millions of Americans. And be like, well, actually, if we don't include them, then we don't have democracy. If we only include like. Uh, like a third of the population, if you're only looking at the third of the population or less than a third of the population, then those people, they don't have democracy because I mean, well, yeah, they're a third of it. I don't, I don't know what that's supposed to mean. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not really sure exactly what you mean by that. I don't think that any democracy that leaves out a consistent portion of people uh, is really democracy. And I would say that that's already been true of the U S for other reasons, but yeah, the whole no, no, I'm saying like if it's a third of the people, like yeah, they're they're voting and stuff, and they have a say in it, right? But if it's if it's a third of the people, then you don't expect that the decisions to be made there, all the decisions to be made there, right? Like everything isn't going to go in the direction of the third, like by definition, because democracy is the majority and a third is a minority, right? That's what I mean. Okay, sure. I mean, but that's kind of the whole point of the Princeton study is that they're showing that the policies that were favored by the wealthy, like the significant minority of people tend to get enacted more than the policies that were favored by the majority of people. Well, yeah, yeah. So, about the, like... the fact of the matter is their own data sets show that these policies that the rich support are supported by people who aren't considered rich a large majority of the time. So just to okay, say, so... oh, well, the, the, the rich are getting, you know, policies that they support, that doesn't really mean anything. Well, that's, you know, why I was asking you know, and why I took issue with the whole term middle class. Like, that is my whole point about that is like middle class is used to obfuscate these things. Like, I think the much more important distinction is what people who work for a living get as far as policy decisions, as far as compared to business owners, because that is the more important distinction. Then I, I would consider that more important than even income. And that's why I don't like the term middle class. That's why I took issue with it to begin with. But um, what was the other thing you just said? I want to address. Yeah, I mean, because they also included people up to $120,000 as middle income, which I also take issue with. Like, that's a significant difference between 40000 It's like literally triple. That's like a very wide range. Like, I would be much happier if they had included, I don't know, just like thirty to 70000 even. Would have been much more fair, I think. And then I mean, it's the, the policy, people the, in the middle. That's why it's called middle class. Yeah, but I don't think that that's... What, I would take it... What, that doesn't seem like the middle. Like, $120,000 a year doesn't seem like it's... A median or the middle, like what, or an average income. Well, no, 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 because that's the top of the middle class. Yeah, but that's, that's what I'm the saying. They purposely, the class, this is right? the whole thing I'm taking issues with is they purposely take such a wide range so that they can include those people at the top who definitely would have more interest with people. That's just the standard definition of middle class, though. Like, who, 
There's I no don't know what you're talking middle about. class man. is my whole point, though. There's there no, is. There... They're literally like Google it. Google it right now. You can find it on Investopedia. You can find it on on every single government website about economics or data that there is. Every single the website about they're all the same right? economic data in the U.S. or literally any country. All of it. They all have middle class in there. Yeah, and I think those and definitions all vary. That's definition. my whole point. They don't, though. That's okay, Ben. You. This is as ridiculous as the situation you were purporting that I was doing a minute ago, which is that I'm saying that these people are making things up. You're telling me that if I just go Google the definition of middle class, it's going to be the same from the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, to like any other source, to different governments. They're all going to have the same definition of middle class. That's fucking ridiculous. Like, well, I'm referring to the data sources, but yeah, it's going to be fairly consistent, if not entirely consistent. What, they're just going to go right? by like... I mean, which ones? I mean, can you think of an example off like, the top of your head where they contradict substantially? No, I just think it's ridiculous that different right. countries would have have matching definitions the way you're in, like assuming. And we're also getting stuck on such a ridiculous point. Like, this is why. Well, I mean, yeah, oh, you man, said a lot of like, silly things about it. So <laughs> I was just kind of. I mean, nothing as silly as a silly as what you that just was said. The talking point we were going with. But all yeah, right. I mean, let's just assume that everybody's got the same definition of middle class. It's a total fiction, but fine. But. All right. Did you want to go over your the the ending part of your thing? I mean, we're it's, we're almost at an hour, but I mean, I'm willing to extend this a little bit. Um, let's go like another I don't know five, like ten at the most. Let's see, um, I wanted to see if I had any other talking points that I wanted to address. Uh... But yeah, I mean, I can provide numerous sources about China going through privatizing state-owned enterprises adding a substantial amount of private property. In fact, there's a lot of, there's various socialist economists like Thomas Piketty, for example, very popular socialist economist. He go, he points to China and he's like, oh, I don't like that because they increased so much private property and it look at the income inequality, which I mean, mm -hmm. he's not the best at measuring income inequality, but regardless, you can see that income inequality increased in China, um, even though it was supposed to be all, all this redistribution, all these socialist policies. But but you see a lot more um, private property rights until more recently when some of that stuff was reversed. And then all of the companies started leaving China. And now it's things are just going to progressively get worse. But okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's yeah. I would like to have you back several times. I mean, my goal of this is really, I would love to have somebody who comes back on a semi-regular basis and we can just have casual conversations about like headlines, like current events and things like that. And just give each other like our, like I said, layman's explanations of our takes on the issues like that. And hopefully not get too bogged down in like, I don't know, nitpicky things like we just were. But um, yeah, as far as China is concerned, if that's the case, I will be very surprised. I mean, I know that that is the common narrative among the right is that China is set to collapse at any moment. And that's been going on for an absurdly long time. But uh, yeah, I just don't see it happening that way. Um, so I have some list of uh, socialist accomplishments here that I'll just like, again, blow through as quickly as I can. Let's see. So that was just a funny graph I, I saw earlier today. Share of the population who think the world is getting better. It's 41% in China, 23% Indonesia, uh, all the way down here, 6% in the USA. Uh, just a sad state of affairs. Here's something that I cite a lot, which is why I don't believe China's COVID numbers is a cop-out and it's a thread on Twitter and this guy compiles a lot of sources. I reference this in a bunch of different places, but that's just popped in there for anybody who wants to peruse it. Like I said before, 95% of global poverty reduction has occurred in China in the past 40 years. Um, there's another quick graph of just like their cumulative deaths attributed to COVID-19 in the U.S. versus China. And it's 
over a million in the US versus like, yeah, less than 100,000 in China. It's like absurdly small compared to the proportions of the populations. Uh, just some quick hits here. Cuba versus the USA. Life expectancy in Cuba is 78.8, whereas in the US is 78.7. It's just a little bit lower. I know it's a minimal difference, but this is all like, despite the massive trade embargoes and the economic blockades. Uh, infant mortality rate per 1,000 births in Cuba is 3.8. In the US is 5.6. The literacy rate in Cuba is 99.7. In the US it's 81%. Women in parliament, Cuba has 53.4%. In the US has 26.5 some sources and see some stuff about Venezuela under Hugo Chavez's era. So unemployment dropped from 14.5% of the total labor force in 99 to 7.6% 7, 7 in 2009. GDP per capita rose from 4,105 4, to 10,801 in 2011. Poverty decreased from 23.4% in 99 to 8.5% in 2011. And infant mortality rate fell more than 20, 20 sorry, more than 20 I guess percent, sorry. 1,000 live births in 1999 to a rate. Oh, yeah. So it was 20 per 1,000 live births and to 13 per 1,000 live births in 2011. Um, and then oil exports boomed. They had one of the top proven oil reserves in the world. And in 2011, OPEC put the country's net oil export at $60 billion. In 99, it stood at 14.4. Um, I have some things that were results from the first five year plan in the USSR. Just like increased industrial output compared to like U.S., Britain, and Germany, like three times as much. Uh, let's see. Improvements in agriculture. Again, I'm going to put all these in the show notes. I'm going to have I'm not going to read through all of these. And then here, this is an important one. Material conditions, number of workers in large-scale industries doubled. 85% increase in national income. 67% increase in average annual income in large-scale industries. Social insurance fund increased by 292%. And 158,000 new shops and stores. There's, another, there's more like just stuff from the USSR and everything. Things from the GDR, East Germany. I particularly like a lot of their social programs that allowed women in the labor force, um, allowed families. Like that's another thing that I like to talk about with um, people who like are lamenting the declining birth rates in the US or like very worried about outlawing abortion so we can have more people or they're like worried about like population declines or whatever. Uh, the GDR is a good example for why it's good to have strong social programs and allow people to actually like be able to have families and careers and be productive members of society to do both. Uh, those are important things for any stable society. And so the, again, I'm going to just put it all in the show notes, but the, the gist is that they had a lot of social programs that allowed women in the workforce. They had state sponsored childcare. They had people that would help you with your grocery shopping, even, um, just the women's rights were pretty much unprecedented in the GDR. And they use, they have some graphs in, in here that compare it to West Germany. Um, but we're, I mean, we're already getting past like the five minutes that I wanted to spend on it. I didn't really want to spend too much. There's some stuff about Thomas Sankara in Burkina Faso. He's incredibly impressive with the improvements he was able to make. But um, I don't know, do you have any responses? I kind of want to just move toward wrapping it up, but I would like to do this again um, so we can continue just hitting more of these points if you like. I mean, yeah, this is all stuff I've researched extensively in the past, um, especially on, on my TikTok. I have several videos going in depth on Cuba, um, on all the different metrics of material conditions, their healthcare system, on the uh, effects of the embargo. So basically what's happening here with Cuba is 
several different things, sort of a mix between the outright fabrication of data when it comes to mortality and infant mortality, um, different definitions used because, you know, like when they're actually saying, oh, this is a dead baby that we're measuring, you know, in the US, we count miscarriages and stuff like that in Cuba, that's not counted. Um, also the coerced abortions in Cuba, um, which, you know, taking out more um, physically unfit fetuses and babies. I'm definitely so going to have to ask you for sources have... on both of these for the next Oh, yeah, time. yeah, I got, I got, I got, I got plenty. I mean, not um, right now. You can send us after and we'll put them in the show notes or whatever, but yeah. Yeah, sure. There's a great paper by Vincent, Pelo Vincent Galoso, Benjamin Powell, and a few others. Um, it's called something like infant mortality and longevity something or rep repression. Um, if you just Google like Cuba infant mortality, it's one of the first search results that come up. Let me see here. And they, they go into like a lot of different arguments as to why it's um why it's inaccurate. There's a lot of other other similar papers. Um and they, they cite some of them. Like there's there's one that's a synthetic control analysis and it's like, okay, well would would infant mortality in Cuba be here if it if the revolution never happened? But I know you're not a big fan of synthetic control analyses despite how statistically <laughs> uh, strong they are. Um like I said, there's that there's that paper about um, there's that paper from Benjamin Powell, Vincent Glosso, a few different economic historians. Hey, sorry, just Ben, real quick. This just occurred to me, but um, maybe we can save this for another time. But what do you, you statistical control analysis, you're calling them? Synthetic control analysis. Synthetic control, I'm sorry. Synthetic control analyses. What, how similar are those when they project it out for like something like the U.S.? How similar does that end up being to what actually happens over like, I don't know, 10, 20 year span, like however, however long they project? Have they tried that yet? Well, it depends on how you structure the synthetic control analysis, of course, because you can do a poor job. In fact, there's a recent paper that got a lot of criticism from a, an economist, Phil Magnus, where he was he was actually it was actually about Marx. Um, so he was making a synthetic control analysis of what would have happened with Marx in in reading and academia if the uh, Bolshevik Revolution had never happened. And a lot of people point out, yeah, I mean, there was a there was some severe flaws in creating the model. Um, but you know that's why you go through a peer review process. That's why you you know actually. Um, well, the reason I asked that is because, but I they, said it they, last time as a joke. But I, I seriously would like to know, like, have there ever been any synthetic control analysis enthusiasts, economists who have projected like, you know, the future of a capitalist economy, and then uh, correctly predicted booms and bust cycles that happen every ten years? Like, did anybody predict that happening in the U.S. even close to the times that did it happen? Like. What is, I that, don't know that what was, that's, that means. I, well, I said it last time before, like when they factored in this, they did this, you know, fictional analysis of what it would have been like if capitalism had stayed in the U.S. in, in Russia, did they factor in like a boom and bust cycle? Did they have like a Great Depression factored in there? Because the USSR pretty much avoided the Great Depression. It's like, this, this is what I mean. Like, is anybody factoring in, is anybody coming up with a synthetic control analysis that booms and busts every 10 years. So the years way a synthetic control analysis works is you're taking other models, right? You're taking some sort of other data that you can add in there. So like I said last time, for like a synthetic control analysis on the Soviet Union, and you're saying, well, what if they went this direction? What they're doing is they're taking countries like Japan, they're taking similarly situated countries, and they're taking different aspects. Like, um, you know, if, if they have, there's one on Venezuela, so they're like, oh, let's find... Uh, a country that went through a similar oil crisis as Venezuela, and look at the effects of that, right? They're, they're taking different aspects of different data and sort of piecing them together to try to create the most accurate synthetic um, model as possible. 
right? So if you're taking Japan or you're taking pre-USSR Russia, if they're going through these boom and bust cycles, like you say that every capitalist economy will go through, which is obviously ridiculous, then I mean, yeah, those are factored in. Like that's that's how it works. Yeah. Right. They're not I mean, making I mean, some stuff, they're not just making stuff up out of nowhere. They're taking yeah. existing trends and aggregating them to create the most accurate one that represents whatever country they're looking at. No, I get that it is not just pure speculation, it is extrapolation. I understand that. But what I'm saying is like it seems to me like this is pretty much I don't know, it's almost like trying to predict the future. And I feel like if it was really as accurate as you might want it to be, then people would be using this also to make a bunch of money because that's a huge way to make money in any capitalist structure is to be able to predict markets and things like that. So I I guess I just don't see the value in it because well, I no, like no, no, this isn't predicting the future. It's predicting the past. Yes, yeah, like what, what data are you using to predict like the future? Alternate future? You're using the data from the past twenty years to showing you what would happen in the last twenty years to predict the future. I don't, I don't see how that makes any sense. You're predicting the past. Okay, right? no, I, it's I, a I definitely been misinterpreting what synthetic control analysis is used for. Then, if that's the case. Yeah, yeah. It's a counterfactual, so it's completely yeah, complete opposite. I got you. I mean, but I mean, it's like I said, it is being widely used uh, in, in different fields. Um, there's synthetic control analyses on gun control policies, on tax policies, and lots of lots of different things. You can find it um, all over the place. Um, <laughs> let's see here. Yeah, um, like I said, I was I was going over Cuba. Uh, yeah, so so outright fabrication of data, different measures of infant mortality. Um, there's also different things like the restriction of cars in Cuba. Um, so like, car accidents have a substantial effect on a lot of countries' um, mortality rates or, or life expectancies. Like if you take Brazil for example and excluded car accidents, then they're their life expectancy is going to increase by over a year, up to close to two years, um, which is pretty substantial, right? So when you're trying to say, well, this is because of the healthcare system, well, it's obviously not because there's a large number of deaths that are happening because of other things like cars. And, you know, since the Cubans don't have cars, they're going out and biking and they're doing stuff like that, which, you know, helps keep them healthy. So they are avoiding, you know, some health problems that Americans have, but those health problems, of, of course, are unrelated to the, uh, healthcare system. And there's there's lots of different things that the um, authors go into in, in this paper and in lots of different um, related I mean, papers. I would just say that that's still an accomplishment of socialism because car infrastructure is a capitalist thing. Restricting cars, access to cars is an accomplishment of social. I mean, if you want to say so, like, I won't, I won't contest that. <laughs> I mean, you say it's restricting cars, but you could also just frame yeah. it as having public transportation or, you know. Well, they do restrict cars, yeah. I mean, that's fine. I don't really, I'm sure there's a legitimate communist reason for that. That's the first I've heard of it, but <laughs> I don't know why they would be restricting cars. I was always under the impression that they were not able to import cars, and that's why they have so few. What is the, what is the specific restriction to placing in cars? Is it pollution related? They're, un, they're unable to, to import cars. I mean, like the the paper goes into the specific uh, citations for that, so. Okay, I thought maybe you just had like the explanation off the top, like if you happen to know why they're restricting cars. I don't. I have no clue why they're restricting cars. Just to be evil, know. right? Like, they're just they're just being. The dicks, Cuban government does a lot of silly things, honestly. 
Yeah, I have a feeling that they actually have a good reason. Then you just yeah, you're avoiding that. It's it's fine. Do they have a good reason? I don't. Like I said, this is the first I've heard of them restricting cars. Like I said, I thought it was because of the economic blockade. They literally can't do business with most countries because if a country does business with Cuba, then that country can't do business with the U.S. So they choose not to a lot of the times. So that's like the effect of this economic embargo. Yeah, the economic embargo is another um, thing to to talk about. So basically, you didn't have any effects of the economic embargo until the 90s, pretty much, right? Because in the 60s, the early 60s, basically 1960, 1961, when this was happening, at the exact time, the USSR was replacing the US as Cuba's um, main trade partner. Mm -hmm. You can see this in the data. They, they started um, deporting or sorry, exporting a lot of uh, sugar and stuff like that to the USSR. The USSR was overpaying for all of it because, you know, they wanted to uh, support Cuba, obviously. And so you didn't really see any effects from the, uh, the embargo until the 90s after the Soviet Union fell. And then that's when Cuba did their sort of mild liberalization thing in the, in the 90s. So it wasn't, wasn't too much, didn't go far enough, of course, but that helped them to basically recover from the effect of losing uh, the Soviet Union as a trading partner, at least to some extent. So I, I don't support the embargo on Cuba. In my personal opinion, it actually makes things worse for the capitalist side of things because um, you're not only taking away a trading partner, of course, but it gives socialists and communists an excuse and not a very good one, right? So they, they can point to failed places like Venezuela and Cuba and North Korea and say, oh, well, all the bad things are just because of the embargoes. Even though you can prove it's not true, they're, they're just going to keep repeating that lie yeah. um, because some bad things, of course, happen because of because of the embargoes and because of the sanctions. So it would be better to just let them fail on their own. And I you know, hear socialists say that all the time. Oh, why not just let them fail on their own? I agree. Let them fail on their own. Um, don't, don't impose sanctions and stuff like that. Even Castro himself said multiple times that the embargo on Cuba actually strengthened him and it helped keep him in power and it made people like see him as in a lot more of a positive light um, in Cuba. And um, Shea said something similar before the uh, before the embargo was implemented. He said, oh, well, it's not going to do anything. It's going to be better for the revolution, stuff like that. Um, you mentioned like Sankara. What was that about Sankara again? Um, I do saw my screen share. The will pull it up here. Um, I really want to wrap it up, but we can, we can go a little longer, I guess. Let's see. Burkina Faso. I'll just. So. Some accomplishments, just quick hits for Thomas Ankara and Burkina Faso. Vaccinated 2.5 million children against meningitis, yellow fever, and measles. Increased the literacy rate from 13 to 73% in four years. Planted over 10 million trees to prevent desertification. Raised wheat production from 1,700 kilograms per hectare to, or hectare to 3,800 kilograms per hectare. Outlawed female genital mutilation, forced marriages, and polygamy, and turned Burkina Faso into a fully food-sufficient country. He lowered his own salary to $450 a month, uh, formed an all-women motorcycle personal guard, which is just hilarious, uh, had over 350 communities construct schools, suspended rural poll taxes and domestic rents, appointed females to high governmental positions, recruited them into the military, and granted pregnancy leave during education, and had 250 reservoirs built and 3,000 wells drilled within one year. Okay. Yeah, I've, I've, I've kind of heard this before. Um, I was actually working on an article 
that kind of reminds me to go back to it, sort of doing a point by point um, response to a lot of these things. So I, I like, I mean, I wouldn't oppose a lot of these things, lowering his salary to $450 a month. I mean, Hey, let's lower government spending. Let's lower, <laughs> he lowered, he lowered a lot of government spending. Um, he actually took all these like fancy cars that the government officials had and sold them. It's like, oh, I don't know. You guys don't get the drive nice cars anymore and stuff like that. Um, he heavily liberalized the agriculture, which a lot of people don't know. He actually like followed it almost to the T, like what the um, I think it was the World Bank or the IMF, something like that. One of those one of those organizations. They're like liberalization plan for um for agriculture. I think they had like seven points, and he followed like five of them. So I mean, there was definitely a lot of good things that happened, but you know, for that that's like less government good things that came from less government, right? Uh. But but for I don't uh, I don't know if they came from less government. Like I think he combated corruption a lot, and I think a lot of the things well, that yeah, were going on corruption. Did, he, he combated a lot of corruption in the government. But he was like he was not a libertarian. Like he was a socialist. He was a Marxist. Well, yeah, I yeah. I, mean, I don't know if he was doing he was these things Marxist, without the help of but, the state. Like he was using state apparatuses to do these things. He was a Marxist, but uh, so the whole like the, there are a few things I do take issue with, like the vaccination thing, kind of attributing that to Sankara. When it was the U.S. and the U.N. and countries with the U.N. that donated all those vaccines and brought them there for the for Burkina Faso to use, I have some documents on that. I would have to go back and find them. If you just go on TikTok, search Praxben Burkina Faso or Praxben Thomas Sankara, you'll find it. I give all the sources there and talk about these points. Um, the hold on, I'll have to I'll have to I'll have to share my screen real quick. And there's two other things that I take issue with because they're just, they don't seem to be true. The infant mortality rate. So we're looking at around, I forget the exact years. Do you recall when it was five um, years, less on, than five the years, win, the somewhere around so. here in the eighties, right? Regardless, let's look at the entire like 80 to 90. I don't, I don't see what they did. Like from here to here. I mean, I don't know. It seems pretty normal. In fact, it seems to kind of like stagnate a little bit almost. Um, no, I don't. Actually, I don't have infant mortality rate for Sankara. That was Cuba. Okay. People usually cite the infant mortality rate as well, but that's okay. Um, literacy rate is kind of kind of similar, right? So like down here. I do have literacy rate for him. Uh, I don't see. see like this huge increase oh, wait, in literacy I? rate. I don't know like where the data actually comes from. Because okay. when I Google like all these claims, you just find a ton, a ton of articles that just copy paste all of them. And you can find some of them because some of them are included on the Wikipedia page and a few other things. And you can find, okay, this is in this book or this is in this um, news article and whatnot. Find some of them. But for, for some of these, it's like, I, I don't know where we get the data that says there's this huge increase in like the literacy rate because like we don't see that in any of the actual data I can find. Um, this is um, well, I mean, I do have Lundy. two sources for that um, that I can just like, go through and then try to find that particular statistic. But since I wanted to wrap it up anyway, and that's a pretty unwieldy thing to do, like on a live recording or whatever, you want to save that for next time then? You can remember yeah, to like... Yeah, I'd love that if you can find stat. it like some in some sort of data source or some sort of like peer review paper or anything like that where we can say, oh yeah, this is like, this is an actual thing instead of it just being claimed in like random pro Sankara articles. Yeah. But yeah, that's, that's my thoughts on Sankara. I think he was one of the least bad um, Marxist leaders because largely what he did, like basically his entire policy, because this was, he didn't last for very long, right? He lasted for less than five years before he was assassinated. 
So mm-hmm. this was the very early things of his his government. And unlike people like Allende, he didn't move super rapidly trying to like go, oh, we're going to go communist as fast as we can. Um, because he he first was dealing with corruption and problems in the in the government. And that's that's why I like about him, because you know he was going after all these things. He was lowering government spending. He was taking away all these um unreasonable benefits that government employees had, and just trying to make things a a bit better overall. And like the liberalization of the agricultural industry as well. Um, but yeah, so that that's 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 about it. Uh, yeah, I mean you, you brought up a lot of things, just like I brought up a lot of things last time, but. I, I responded to at least most of it, at least to some extent. Like I said, the whole capitalism death toll, if you take it at its base value and say, okay, let's say this is it, and then let's say I'm going to defend all this, which I wouldn't obviously say either of those things, then just statistically, it still doesn't match up to the uh, amount of deaths that came out of socialist regimes, even giving them the most conservative estimates, even if you go down to like 70 million instead of a the standard 100 million claim. Um, China, we, we should have like a whole thing about China, honestly, because there's a lot. I was actually going to say, there. since you were talking about that, that we should, we can definitely do like segments on Holodomor, the Great Leap Forward, because I obviously have like takes on those. Um, they mostly amount to that the statistics and the numbers in the West are usually overblown. In the case of the Holodomor, a lot of it is like literal fascist propaganda, including like the name Holodomor being chosen after the fact to associate it with the Holocaust and sort of the, uh, what, they call, what they call the double genocide theory. So that it's like made to equate it with the Holocaust and make it seem like communists are just as bad as fascists um, or quite even the same thing. Um, and the Great Leap Forward, I actually had a, like a, a quick debunk that I cribbed from somebody else's like video in there, but I didn't plan on spending any time on it. But again, it's just like more of the same thing, like there were famines in China that were pretty regular. Um, and then this was the last time that I believe they, they happened in that area um, after Mao took over. But again, not something that I usually spend a lot of time talking about and not something that I spent a lot of time reading about recently. So I'm just giving you like the very general, like I, like I said, I hate that style of argument. I hate doing like the fucking listicle thing and like doing all that kind of thing. Most of that was just to like get me in the door, so to speak, because I feel like I'm not getting a, uh, not getting the generos the generosity from your fans like when they say that i'm just saying things that i that i just believe that i haven't researched it's like no i've been reading about this stuff oh, for they're quite not a while and fans then... of the uh, capitalism death toll we've all heard it so, oh i get it know. no i mean just like i've heard the socialism death toll like i mean i'm also doing this like somewhat uh humorously as well it's like yeah i just don't buy into this uh cherry picking like listicle style of argument to begin with i would much rather just have like like i said layman's terms conversations about it takes on different issues um I think that's about all I got. Let me see if I had anything else on my notes that I wanted to address before we go. Yeah, I mean, if we're uh, ever going to touch on something like the Holodomor going to the Soviet Union, I mean, you should know I'm really, really read on the Soviet Union. That's one of my, like, most read topics. Mm-hmm. So I'm the whole the Holodomor thing, I'm just saying that's not going to be an easy, uh, that's not going to be an easy fight for sure. Like, I've I've dealt with a lot of guys on that. Um, you, people like Grover Fur, they're not going to, they don't, they don't touch me because he's he, they're not going to do debates on this. Uh, Eddie Liger Smith, all these big hankies, like, because you don't, you know, you don't touch me on the whole of more. I've read everything there is. You think you can hold it about, to Grover for himself if you debate yes, him? Easy, easy. Really? Easy. That's absolutely that's 100%. Um, I might give him a call sometime because I was going to say, have you ever reached out to him? I feel like he's reachable. It's, it's, it's pretty easy to call him, actually. I've, I, I know some people 
who have, who have talked to him on the phone. So I would love to see that. All right. Um, well, you know what? Let's wrap it up on that, and then that we agree that Thomas Sankara was cool. It's a good note to end on, right? Uh, he was. He was. He was uh, more cool than every <laughs> other so Marxist leader. I'll say that. I'll say he's cool. That's probably as close as we'll get. Uh, right, didn't cool. he ban the labor unions? I don't know. Probably like those, um, what do you call it? Like the U.S. sponsored ones, the external ones that happens a lot. U.S. Too. sponsored labor unions. Wow, I've never heard of that before. Right. That happens quite a bit. Usually in socialist countries that the U.S. will care about labor unions all of a sudden. Not so much at home, but in other countries, they definitely care about them. It, it, that's another, another familiar pattern. Anyway, I don't want to get into all that. Like, we can, we can talk about that another time. But right. thank you again, Ben. I really appreciate you doing this. Hopefully we can do it again soon. Yep. Have a good night. You too, man.